Coming up on episode 177 of Wheel Bearings, it's an extra strength episode this week. We're driving the 2021 GMC Yukon Denali, the Subaru Crosstrack Limited, and a pair of Kia K5 GT Line sedans. We discuss the new Jeep Grand Cherokee L, a new logo for General Motors, and the Mercedes-Benz hyperscreen that's being shown off at CES. As promised, we talked with Ryan Matulich from Ford about the Godzilla V8, too. That's all ahead on episode 177 of Wheel Bearings. Did you know you can support Wheel Bearings directly? Head to patreon.com slash wheelbearingsmedia and you can become a patron today. Your contributions will help fund the platforms and tools we use to bring the podcast to you. And exclusives and improvements are already on the way thanks to your generosity. So if you want to be a part of an automotive podcast like no other, head to patreon.com slash wheelbearingsmedia. This is Wheel Bearings. I'm Dan Roth from Forbes. I'm Sam Abual Samet from Guidehouse Insights. And I'm Rebecca Lindlin from Rebecca Drive. Sam won the coin toss this week. <laughs> we did not do. Uh, so welcome back, everybody. Um, hey, I want to at least just start by saying hello to all of our uh, Patreon patrons. Um, did you guys know we're up to 32 um, people directly Ooh. supporting us? Wow. That's, uh, that's they like us. us. Thank you so much to everybody. You like us. You really like <laughs> us. <laughs> um, Sally Field, Bandit. Excellent. Excellent. Um, exactly. <laughs> uh, so I think we probably need to just take a, a minute here. And run through the names of the people who are sending us their hard-earned money instead of doing things like I don't know, buying groceries or. I mean, it's not a lot. You oh, know, I'm, I, I'm sure. I'm sure they're also buying groceries too. I hope so. I hope nobody's yeah. putting themselves yeah. into dire financial Please. straits. We, for... we, yeah. <laughs> Please don't do that um, for us. But hey, let me start from the the sort of uh, the list here. So we need to thank Robert Grace. Brentel is the name that he signed up with. Um, Vikram Kirby, uh, Stephen, a uh, couple of Stevens, Stephen No and uh, Stephen Hutto, Scott Yang, uh, Ronald Jennings, Nathan Banks. Uh, I don't have that whole email. Um, let me just look. Uh, Medulla Oblongata, which sounds like a, a surname, uh, not a surname, a, a nom de plume. <laughs> So, um, uh, Larry Jack, Joseph Marino, John Bates, Harold Combs. Oh, some familiar names. Some some fans oh, yeah. from, from a yeah. long time. Uh, Ethan Pope, Colin Howe, uh, strictly Benjamin. Benjamin, thank you for your support. Uh, <laughs> Andy Vickery, Rick Chin, uh, Bryn, I am going to murder your last name, Bryn Berenshausen, I think. Another person I recognize from... The Twitters, uh, William Charles, uh, Sean Whitehouse. Oh, I should say, okay, uh, to like, um, our blind spot monitor is our, our $2, $250, um, tier. And so these folks are blind spot monitor supporters. So Rick Chin and Bryn, uh, Berenshausen are blind spot monitor supporters. And then our next tier is the forward collision alert, uh, supporters, <laughs> And that's $5 a month. And that's so that's uh, William Charles, Sean Whitehouse, Mark Toffelmeyer, 
uh, Jeff Harrod, Jeff Donsback, uh, Holger Eilhard, uh, Gareth Thomas, Florian Herzog, Eric White, Eric Lander. Eric Lander, I know you, like personally. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Daniel Podwall, Andy C. MD, very important. Uh, and then Adam, uh, Adam Jackowinko. So there you go. That's all our supporters, everybody who is kicking in. You could be one too. And then we'll say nice things about you on the podcast like we have about all of these people. Um, but we don't always say nice things. Sometimes we say uh, critical things when we talk about the cars we drive. And so we should do that. Um, who wants to start? <laughs> like we didn't we didn't figure this out first. So we'll just. We'll, well why doesn't Sam go first? Because, Dan, you and I had the same almost the same vehicle. Yeah. So we can compare and contrast. I would love that. So, Dan, so, Sam, why don't you talk about the GMC Denali you had? Sure. So, yeah, I had the, the new uh, Yukon Denali, uh, which uh, launched last year. And this is the latest edition of, of GM's full-size pickup truck, or full-size full size SUVs, not the pickup trucks, the body-on-frame SUVs. And, you know, this is, this is a segment, you know, full-size SUVs that GM, you know, just as Ford has been touting its market leadership on full-size pickup trucks for four-odd decades, GM has been in the same position on the SUV side, the full-size SUV side. And this is this generation that launched last year with the new Escalade, the new Yukon, and the new Suburban is, you know, one of the biggest changes to uh, these vehicles in in many decades. Um, Can I ask you, what's the platform called on this one? Uh, it's the K2 I'm not XX? even sure. Okay. Yeah, something like that. They, you know, they don't really talk about those too much anymore. Okay. Um, it it is derived from the latest generation of the full size pickups that launched a couple of years ago, but it is uh, it is fairly significantly different too. You know, the front suspension architecture is is relatively common between the two, but for the first time, uh, GM has finally adopted independent rear suspension on the uh, on the SUVs. Something that. Ford did back uh, what I guess about 13, 14 years ago on the uh, the Yukon or on the es- uh, the Expedition and the Navigator. I think that was um, actually uh, like turn of the century. N- no, the the Explorer went first. Oh, okay, Maybe and then the Expedition and Navigator uh, picked it up <laughs> around two thousand six. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, no, you're you're right. The, the Explorer the Explorer got uh, independent rear suspension around two thousand. Um, but the, the full size utilities got it a few years later. Uh, and the reason why this is important, you know, it's not just about handling, um, <clears throat> you know, which is you know typically the, the main reason why you would go with independent rear suspension. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, in the case of these vehicles, you know, these are big three row SUVs. And when you've got a solid rear axle, uh, you know, and the, the differential has to has to move up and down with the axle as you go over bumps and things like that. And so that means you've got to leave space for that axle to move. And so when you look inside the vehicle, you know, if you've looked at Suburbans or Yukons or uh, uh, Escalades in the past, once you get past that second row of seats, you'll find that the floor goes up several inches. And uh, because they, they have to have that space for the axle to move around underneath. And so as a result, they have typically had, you know, anybody sitting in those third row seats has been in that classic, you know, knees up position because the seat is mounted right on the floor. It's excellent. Yeah, no- That's why everyone, no one wanted to sit in the middle. 
Right. Exactly. Right? Yeah. yeah. It's it's also excellent for humans of modular construction if you can remove your legs. <laughs> yes. Yes, it is very good. Very good for those folks. You'll be much more comfortable. So the you know the great thing now is you know with an independent rear suspension that the the differential doesn't have to move. So now you can l literally lower the floor by about five or six inches, mm -hmm. and that means that you can you know have the seat mounted above the floor, that third row seat mounted above the floor, and you can have that that gap in there, and the rear seat that third row seating is much more comfortable now. In addition to that, GM also stretched the wheelbase and the length of these by about four or five inches um, compared to the previous generation. So, you know, you've actually really got a usable three-row SUV now. And in addition to that, it also rides and handles a lot better than it did before. I was just going to say, it must feel, you must feel like a king on the highway. And, and you already do with the, the Yukon and, <laughs> uh, the, or the, uh, the Yukon and, and Suburban anyway, but... You must really feel like like royalty floating down the highway in one of those with that long wheelbase that's going to ride well. And then because you've got that independent rear suspension now, the other thing about a live axle is it's just heavy and it's yes. flopping around. Um, now it's bolted to the the body structure. And, and so there's a lot, a lot less weight sort of bouncing over every expansion joint. So it must ride and, and feel really, really good from behind the wheel. It does. It, it's far superior than to any Yukon or Suburban or Tahoe or, uh, or Escalade that's gone before. And, you know, the the um, one of the things that's available on here on these new SUVs is they've added the, uh, the magnetic ride dampers on here. Uh, so that's available. And then in addition to that, there's also an air spring suspension system. So you've got the adaptive magnet ride dampers. Uh, and then the the air suspension really makes the the ride quality so much better. But you know, one of the interesting things um, I think I'm trying to remember now when it was it was either I think it was actually in late 2019, uh, before the pandemic started, or very early last year, that um, when GM had an event uh, at the Milford Proving Grounds where they first uh, showed us the the Tahoe and Suburban. At that point, um, they showed off the Yukon a couple of weeks later, I think in Idaho, which I think where you went for that one, Rebecca. If I yeah, recall. it was um, Vail. Vail. Okay. Yeah. Um, at, at any rate, um, at Milford, you know, we got to ride back to back in the Tahoe and then in the um, the Expedition, you know, and, you know, some of the roads, the road surfaces we drove on, you know, fairly bumpy road surfaces or going over uh, railroad tracks, you know, at an angle, oblique railroad tracks. Um, one of the things you noticed in the expedition is as good as, you know, the expedition has been for years, you know, so, you know, for years, it's been so much better handling and riding than the GM SUVs. But in comparison to these new ones, you got a lot more head toss in the Ford. Um, you know, so, you know, you feel the body moving side to side in the GM SUVs. Now it's so much better controlled. You know, it, it, it feels much more stable. Um, than than it does in the Fords or in really anything else. Were those so, um, were those ones that you were driving over the railroad tracks? Though they had, I'm assuming, the air suspension and the MR shocks. Versus, yes, yeah. and and that's what was in the uh, the Yukon Denali uh, that I was driving last week yeah. as well. 
Um, so, so and, it and had, the ex, there's nothing like that on the expedition, right? The, and maybe air suspension. The, yeah. The, the, the expedition, uh, offers an adaptive damping system, oh, but it it's more the, the traditional dampers, you know, with just, um, electronically controlled, uh, valving inside right, the so damper. Kind of so like adjust rebound. Yeah. So it's got less range of adjustment and it's not as fast as the MR dampers. Um, so why would they not have done this before? Why would GM have not done this right. before? Right. If um, Ford did it so many years ago at the turn of the century nearly. Well, it, it does <laughs> it does cost more. Okay. Uh, you know, it it is more expensive. Um overall it does add more weight. Uh you know, an independent oh. rear suspension is heavier than, you know, so And why is the, that? Um because the the components there there's more com there's actually more components in there and you have to have kind of a subframe in there, you know, you've got the um you've, you've got the suspension links that um you know that actually support the wheels so typically an independent rear suspension is depending on the vehicle anywhere from 100 to 150 pounds heavier than, oh, wow. than a, a traditional lot. live axle yeah but the, yeah. the difference though is that all the extra weight is is on the sprung side so right it's it's um it's supported by the suspension versus the suspension having to react to it um, I guess yeah. is a good way to so, describe it. Yeah, you know the you know with a, with a beam axle, a, a solid axle, the entire weight of the axle is moving around, and so you've got all that inertia. So when you go over bumps, you've got to move right. all this weight. With um, with an independent rear suspension, most of those components, the differential, the axle shafts are uh, now become uh, sprung weight. So the the unsprung weight is is the enemy. Uh, that's what you don't okay. want as far as ride and handling goes. That's um, why we hate heavy wheels. <laughs> yes. Yeah. No, tr truly, that, that is that is uh, an issue. Um, so basically what you've got is less of the weight that actually has to move around when you go over bumps or hit potholes. So it can respond better, respond faster, so you get better ride quality. It's it's GM's version of muscle weighs more than fat. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they've, exactly. They've yeah. up the abs. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, to um, to their credit, you know, at the same time, while, you know, you've added some weight with the IRS, um, you know, they've taken weight out of other parts of the vehicle. So it's actually not any heavier than before. And it's actually lighter than before. So, um, you know, the GM's actually been really good over the last decade at, you know, um, optimizing weight in their vehicles. And they've done a great job on, you know, all their last couple of generations of vehicles of actually making them lighter uh, without re without really having to uh, resort to exotic materials or even even doing like what Ford did with their trucks and, and utilities going to an all aluminum body. You know, they've stuck with steel bodies, but, yeah. you know, they, they've really done a lot of great design optimization to bring bring the weight down. Um, is there? So, uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I, I was going to get super geeky, and I can just look at a press release. So ca carry on. Well, go ahead. That's, <laughs> I was just going to say, question. like, are the th are, super geeky is what we're here for? <laughs> do they um, do any aluminum anywhere? Like with the closures, like the door skins or the hood? Yeah. And, and so there, there, there are aluminum, like the the hood, the the tailgate. You know, and there there is selective use of aluminum in a lot of places. So it's not the, it's not like there's no aluminum, but they haven't made the entire body out of aluminum. Yeah. Right. Like and, Ford did. Right. And, yeah. you know, GM's made some hay out of this with the trucks, especially, um, right. you know, when shortly after the aluminum F-150 came out in 2015, yeah. you know, they ran some ads where, you know, they took uh, an F-150 and a Silverado, I think. And, you know, they put a took a front end loader and dumped 
um, you know, rocks into the beds of each of those trucks. And, you know, one in the Ford, you know, you actually got some tearing in the bed of the, the aluminum uh, truck. Whereas GM, it didn't do that. And now GM even offers a carbon fiber bed in, uh, in some of the trucks. So, um, you know, they are using aluminum selectively in various places. And, you know, it's, it's basically, you know, smart use of the, you know, for every single component, optimizing what is the, the right material to use from a balance of weight and cost and strength that's needed. So yeah. where you need extra strength, they're using steel where, where you can, you know, where it's not as likely to be a problem like the hood, you know, then use aluminum. Uh, so they're, they're doing some really smart stuff there. Or composites. So, GM knows a lot about yeah, composites. Or, yeah, composites too. So a lot of really smart stuff on this vehicle. You know, I think overall really well executed. You know, the materials and the fit and finish as we've talked about before with, I think with the, I think you had the Suburban, Rebecca. Yes. Um, and, you know, the, you know, the, the latest generation of trucks, you know, they're, you know, GM's big trucks and utilities, you know, in the, the pe previous generation, we criticized them for, you know, a lot of hard plastic. They felt kind of cheap compared to right. the competition. No longer an issue. You know, the materials in this Yukon Denali, especially in, in the Denali, especially which is in the, the high, end, high end version, uh, you know, really live up to the price point, which is good because that price point is fairly hefty. I, it didn't <laughs> seem like the Denali you expect to be expensive. So when you told us the price, it didn't seem that ridiculous yeah I, you know no i mean given given the have market, you told us the price yet not on the show <laughs> not okay. on the show I'll, I'll get to that um well let's 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 dive right into that so the the yukon denali uh the two-wheel drive starts at a little over sixty-eight thousand dollars, which is you know it, it's not bad for you know a premium full-size suv you know i mean you can get yukons for a lot less than that you know starting around forty thousand um, you know, the Denali is the premium luxury version, you know, and it's just like, you know, half a step below an Escalade in terms of luxury. Um, the the one I drove, you know, when, when you add four wheel drive, you know, that that's the sixty eight thousand is for a rear wheel drive. You go to four wheel drive that adds several thousand more. Um, the one I drove also had the um, the Denali ultimate package. Which adds, uh, and that was the only option, or actually, well, one of only three options. Well, then it's yeah. not the ultimate yeah. package. If, it's, right. <laughs> if you can add more so, options after it, it's not the penultimate. The other options were the uh, $495 premium for the Hunter Metallic paint. Oh, uh, And $350 nice, bucks for the floor console with the power sliding center uh, drawer. Mm. Um, but Which I found the, quite handy in the Suburban, wait, wait, it's actually. Got, yeah. That was cool. Power, power no, sliding center? That's... Yeah, it was cool. Uh, that sounds interesting. Um, yeah, but, but the 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 ultimate package is eleven thousand two hundred and fifty five dollars. Um, and going back, you know the the base price of the four wheel drive Denali is seventy one thousand four hundred dollars. That's not for seventy one thousand four hundred dollars. You don't get adaptive cruise control. I feel like that's an oversight. Yes, that, that this, this be... is this is an issue we've we've complained about with GM for a while now with their packaging of driver assist features yeah. uh, in their vehicles. You know, they, they tend not to put them in a lot of these features, a lot of features that you can now get as standard equipment in, you know, $20,000 cars right. are not available you know, or, or they're, are they're part of extra cost packages on their premium vehicles. 
That's um, ridiculous. And it's, it's yeah, a choice. Yeah. It's not that it can't be done and, yeah. and it would really yeah. add to you the know, for, yeah. for, for $71,000, you know, the adaptive cruise control, you know, the radar, I mean, the only thing you're really adding for that is the radar sensor and some extra software. Those those radar sensors that are used, they cost about $40. Well, uh, I mean, that's not insignificant over a few hundred No, I mean, it, no. It's, it's not. But at $71,000 to, you know, for, for Denali, yeah, you know, I would say, you know, bump it up by another 50 bucks and right. include the that, adaptive cruise cool. control standard. And I'm building one right now that's 84. I'm up to $84,000. Yeah. yeah, my the one I drove was $83,795. <laughs> yeah, that's where delivery. I am exactly. Yeah. Wow. Um, oh, and it doesn't and that, have adaptive cruise control? Well, the, the ultimate package includes the adaptive cruise control. So oh, okay. you got you to buy that $11,000 option package. That's to get the adaptive only cruise way to get adaptive cruise control. Yep. It's not available as a standalone option. Oh. I don't think. Not that I could so find. What I also oh find interesting gosh. about the Denali versus the AT4, which I, I t- actually tend to like the AT4 trim better because it looks a little bit, uh, a little bit more um, rugged. Uh, yeah, I was yeah. gonna say aggressive. Um, it's interesting to me that they went through the trouble of doing two different instrument panels, two different dashboards for the the two different uh, Yukons. Uh, the Denali has a different dashboard than the AT4. From what it looks like in pictures, um, yeah, and I think it, I think it should though because they are two different customers. Yeah, it, it doesn't like it's the the AT4 is a little bit more like the trucks, where it's got this sort of the free floating screen, and um, it it maybe it's just a trick of the the way the photography is, but I don't think so because there's there's um, center vents, HVAC vents in the picture of the Denali interior that extend from the the hood over the instrument panel. And that is not there um, in the photo of the AT4 interior. So mm. the, the center fence are actually in the middle of the center stack. So to me, that's, that's one of those little touches that uh, separates the Denali from the lower trims. And, and there's, there's a few of those that, that GM does um, across the, the lineup to, to really make the Denali feel something special, almost like, three quarters of the way to an escalate. So I just, I find that this is the first time I've seen that is that they've, mm. they've gone through the trouble of two different dashboards. Um, yeah. Do. And I mean, they've, they've done a lot to distinguish the Denali from, uh, you know, from the, from the other trim levels, you know, including a completely unique front fascia, you know, there's, there's a lot of stuff that's different. Um, overall, you know, I mean, it, it's an expensive vehicle, but you know, it's, it's not, it's not crazy expensive compared to a lot of other premium SUVs. I mean, if you go out, you know, and look at a Mercedes GLS, um, you know, or BMW X7, you're going to pay at least that much anyway. So, you know, at, at eighty four thousand dollars for this thing, it's not. I mean, yes, it's expensive, but it's not crazy expensive in the in the context of the segment. And you can get a Yukon, and get you know all the you know all all the benefits of this upgraded Yukon. You know, at half this price. Yeah. Well, and and also from if you're comparing things like the BMW X7 maintenance wise, it's probably going to be less. Oh yeah. Over time as well. Yeah, especially you, you know, know with, service you know, with and, a small block V8. You know, it, yeah. it's it's going to be a, a much better um, you know much better option for you. Yeah, I think GM um, has hand has figured out their pushrod bending issues from the the um, yeah. <laughs> displacement <laughs> the the cylinder deactivation. I yeah I found that out when I was looking for trucks. It's like oh yeah sometimes they they just they bend pushrods they'll and and then you know you got to take it apart a little bit and re- replace some some lifters and stuff. It's, yeah. 
Yeah, it's easy enough to do. I mean, it's yeah, not, it's, it's not a big job. It's big enough. <laughs> I've, I've done it before. No, it's not. It's not terrible, but it's yeah. Um, so. You know, it's, this is, you know, this is a, a handsome looking vehicle. You know, it's got the power running boards. Um, how do you the, how do we feel about power running boards? I, I like them. Yeah. You know, I, think I love them. You, I think, you know, if certainly, you know, with a big vehicle like this, it certainly helps to have running boards, um, you know, to be able to step up into it. I mean, for, for me personally, I can step up into it, uh, especially if you have the air suspension. It lowers down anyway mm. when you park it. Um, but I, I don't personally have a, a, a challenge stepping up into it. Um, but you know, somebody like Rebecca or even my wife who's you know, she's a little bit taller than you are, Rebecca, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, it, it definitely helps to have those running boards. And then, you know, the fact that they do retract up against the body, you know, as soon as you close the doors, uh, you know, definitely helps, um, you know, if you're going through snow and everything and, you know, keep, you know, they don't get as dirty, um, and it's better for aerodynamics. So there's there's a lot of a lot of benefits to it. Yes, it does add complexity. It's another thing to potentially break. I just yeah, here in the briny north. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> but that's okay. Um, I mean, I just yeah, I I do like the functionality. It's just yeah, yeah. I mean, from a functional standpoint, it, it's definitely a, a benefit. You know, and I mean, if you're driving through deep snow, you know, not having that running board hanging down there, you know, that's you know, if it's up tucked up against the body. You know, it's going to be it's going to be easier to to get through deep snow than it is if it if it is hanging down. You know, it's one more thing to drag through that snow. Um, so yeah, I think I think that's good. Um, you know, on the Denali, they have uh, just two engine options uh, this year. Um, they have the six point two liter V eight, the bit the big V eight, uh, and then which is actually a fifteen hundred dollar premium over the standard engine, which is the diesel, the three liter diesel. Wait, the diesel is standard. The diesel is standard that on the is Denali. Fascinating. Wow. Yeah, the five three is not available on the Denali this year. Uh, so the the three liter diesel, which is a fantastic engine, we've talked about it before. Yeah. It's really smooth, really efficient. So quiet. Very quiet. Um, personally, I think if I was going to be buying a Denali, I would just go with the diesel. Mm. Um, yeah. Because I mean, it's all of the things I aspire to be: smooth, efficient, yeah. I mean, quiet. The, <laughs> <laughs> you know, the six two V eight, you know, is a great engine yeah it's a lovely yeah. engine but man is it thirsty well, what did you get for fuel economy uh 14 miles per gallon excellent yeah <laughs> that's wow. that's what i got with the 7.3 <laughs> well actually yeah. i got 12 and a half i, I babied it a bit <laughs> you know it's it's uh it's epa rated at um 14 city 16 or 19 highway 16 combined um you know it was cold here i you know when i had it i only managed uh four just over 14 um combined you know i did some highway driving as well, well and it sounds good on on ramps too you get that lusty it does. well especially rumble. with the the quad exhaust yeah. that's on the denali yeah. you know, yeah. it's got the quad exhaust I pipes mean, the other thing too with the with the diesel is the dri- the driving range mm-hmm. you know it's 750 miles what? um for the yukon <laughs> xl it defi- well it definitely exceeds the range of an average human bladder i was so. gonna yeah. say like <laughs> that's like three stops i you know that's crazy. Wow. Yeah. That, I mean, that's pretty impressive. And, uh, you know, if you're going to tow. Um, yeah. I was you know, going to ask you about the, the towing. Yeah. I mean, I, I didn't do any towing. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, if you're going to be doing towing on a regular basis, the diesel is also, you know, it's it's got, I think it's got a lower, I'm not sure exactly what the towing capacity is with the yeah, diesel. Yeah. I'm it's, looking it's, and it's I lower. can't, it doesn't. I think it's, 
I think it's around 8,000 pounds. Well, so okay. one of the reasons um, why you would think that the diesels, uh, diesels typically are, are a tow option, but yeah. you know, there's, there's heat management. There's actually extra weight with the diesel because of the, the exhaust after treatment stuff. So, and, and I, I dug into the, the uh, Jeep Gladiator diesel. Um, and, and that's where the curiosity started. I was like, why with the diesel is it not probably not going to tow as much as it does with the Pentastar? And, and I'm assuming those reasons are similar here. There's only yeah. so much cooling you can get out of out of whatever they've got at you know frontal area and stuff, and and um, you know the weight does play a, a factor too. But on the on the flip side, if you are towing, um, you know the nature of a diesel uh, when it's under heavy load, it doesn't the fuel economy does not degrade nearly as much as it does with a gas mm-hmm. engine. Yeah, you know if you're towing an eight thousand pound trailer with that six two, instead of fourteen miles per gallon, you're probably going to get about seven or eight if you're doing the same thing with a diesel you know instead of you know 23 miles per gallon you're going to get maybe 21 or 22 it it tends to the fuel economy tends to hold up a lot better if you're towing so if you're you know if you're thinking about denali and you want to get uh, and you want to and you plan to do towing you know if you've got a boat or you got you know some snowmobiles or jet skis or something that you're gonna you know tow on a regular basis uh you know if you're only towing once or twice a year doesn't it's not going to make a difference but if you're towing regularly you should definitely consider getting the diesel instead and i think that's that's why gm offers the diesel and and the the same thing is certainly true for ford on their trucks you know and and for chrysler you know they offer the diesel engine because for those people that tow a lot it does make a big difference yeah yeah well and and you know these are these are great vehicles for towing. The long wheelbase is going to help you out. It's going to feel really good. Uh, you know, it's not going to not going to get wagged by the the tail as much. Um, yeah. you, if you're going to tow, pay attention to the numbers because this is this is the thing that we do here as as uh, journalists who don't tow a lot is we'll look <laughs> at the max towing number like wow that's that's excellent. Um, it usually has a few asterisks next to it. Like you have to figure out what the payload is so that you can figure out your gross combined vehicle weight rating. Um, and, and so yes, it can tow 8,000 pounds with this very specific exact configuration, usually two wheel drive with the class three hitch and, you know, um, uh, the towing package and, and stuff. Uh, so if you wanted like four wheel drive and max towing, that may be something that is, is not available. So you got to look at it. Um, that's that's my treatise on yeah, towing. Yeah, but I, I yeah. do like the GM. I mean, and others have this as well. The towing package that they have, the visibility that they've done, the cameras, all the angles. Yeah. I mean, I learned to tow with GM, uh, ironically, nearly at the turn of the century. Really? And yeah. <laughs> that's good. So when I need a delivery of some stuff, I'll call you. You can back because I suck at backing exactly. up a trailer. I'm terrible at it. <laughs> well, and the and the improvements, you know, over time have been really significant. And as I said, others offer this as well. But what I like about this, this Yukon, Yukon Denali, is that, you know, this is a, this is a very good example of, and we've talked about this before, when people ask us, what's the best vehicle? And it depends, right? And this is so, this is such a good vehicle for, for people that need this kind of capability, this passenger room, these interior features, even the driving range, the diesel, the towing, it checks so many of those boxes for, for that, that lifestyle. And so 
you know, this is one of the great things about so much variety. This vehicle is not for everybody, but it's not intended to be for everybody. It is intended for this particular customer. And that's why I think they've done a really good job of keeping that customer in mind. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the the extra length that they added, you know, with this generation, like I said, they made it about four, uh, I think four or five inches longer than the previous generation, um, you know, makes a big difference inside, you know, in that third row seat. Adults can sit comfortably in that third row now. You know, it's not yeah. just the, you know, the seating position, you know, not having that knees up seating position anymore, but it's also, you know, there's, there's actually adequate, very more than adequate leg room in that third row, um, you know, for me to sit back there, yeah. uh, you know, and, and fairly comfortably. And then, you know, behind the third row, uh, there's 25 and a half cubic feet of cargo space behind the third row. Wow. You know, which, uh, you know, is, is, very impressive, you know, especially compared to some past generations of, you know, the standard wheelbase Yukon and Tahoe, um, you know, they, they tended to, they, you know, they pushed that third row back. And so you tended to not have very much cargo space behind that third row. So if you had to use all three rows of seating, there wasn't much room for any other stuff in the back. This is yeah. the, um, this is this the is, longest, longest uh, length, right? This, this is like a suburban length. Or, or is it no, shorter? this is that, this is the, the twenty five and a half cubic feet is for the standard length. Oh, that's, that's the one excellent I had. then. If you get the Yukon XL, the long oh, wheelbase version, of, yeah. now you have forty one and a half cubic feet behind the third row, <laughs> yeah. which you know. And then yeah. you know, if you that's fold amazing. down both, you know, the behind the, the if you fold both the second and third row seats, um, in the, have, the, you, the standard you, one, you, you get one hundred twenty three. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You have one hundred twenty three <laughs> cubic feet, and then one hundred forty five uh, behind, you know, in the long wheelbase. So, you know, that, you know, if you need that space, then, you know, these are, these are fantastic options. Well, um, and it's a, it's a vehicle that a family can grow into, right? So if you've got, yeah, I mean, you know, you if know, you've got middle, you know, young kids, six, seven, eight years old, by the time that they're 15, 16, they can, they can fit in, they can still fit in that third row. I mean, you saw yes. my grocery order yesterday in the Trump. Yeah, <laughs> of course, you know, the, the, the 16, 17 year olds can also, you know, fit in the third row of a minivan. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, but not look nearly as sexy. Well, well I mean, <laughs> this is the thing as a, I'm realizing this now. Well, you know, and not tow as much too. Right. They don't tow it. That's true. Um, yeah, I'm realizing so again, this. It's 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 that that you know it, it all depends. Yeah. You know, what right. are your needs? And and as a as a, a family owner, um, your needs are really variable and and they can change really quickly. Uh, and so, you know, if your family does, if if you vacation in a certain way or you 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 do certain activities and stuff you just you need a vehicle that can uh, handle every, anything and everything kind of at a, at the drop of a hat and that's part of what makes uh crossovers and SUVs very popular is they can handle just about any weather conditions most terrains that sane people are going to drive on um and and they have you know they're good comfort good cargo room um there's a reason why they're popular, and and right. I see that in my own life experience. So no wonder why it's popular. You know, I'm, I'm I love sports cars, but the practical decision is to not buy a sports car. It would be to buy something that's big and ready for just about anything, and that's what that's what these are. And now, now as the avowed lefty here, I'm going to step in and, and make a comment. <laughs> uh, you know, the you know the reality is that you know people buy vehicles like this. You know, in many cases. Because they, they want to have that capability, you know, in case they ever need it. It's definitely irrational. But but, but most of the time, they don't need that is this capability. I mean, yep. yes, I 
I acknowledge there are absolutely cases. There are a lot of customers out there that need this kind of capa- this kind of capability on a regular basis. But I very often also see these vehicles running around with just one person in there. Yeah, we certainly like it was last yeah. week when I was driving it. Even even people that own them, you know, and you know if if you only need a vehicle like this, you know, two or three times a year. There are options to rent these things. Yeah, but that's such you a thing. Know, no, but so nobody thinks like that. It's too rational. I know. I know it's an absolutely un-American <laughs> attitude to express. Well, uh, but, but part of it, too, is like, as as you're just dealing with the chaos of a multi-child family, and as they get older and they do their things and they go their places, like, it's just, sometimes you buy that comfort and you're like, yeah, I'll only use it twice a year, but I've got it. All the time. Yeah. Instead of like having to now figure out a rental and you like if you've ever rented a car, it's a bit of a hassle, even if the rental, you know, office is like a couple miles away. It's just a pain. And uh, I, I get it. It's still it's it's where you're paying for the convenience and 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 polluting more and all of those things. So uh, what's more American than that, though? <laughs> like I, I get it. Um, and you're right. Yeah. I think it is. It's an irrational kind of comfort level that we're buying. Um, but it's also like there's a reason why we like them. And, and yeah. so the- it also it, I mean, it takes a family through multiple life stages. Yeah. It takes an owner, I should say, through multiple life stages. Right. That's the thing is that this is, you know, if you've got even even three kids, which is not unreasonable, this is a vehicle that, you know, and there, and if you've got three kids, they've got friends as well, you know, and that's the thing is it's pile in, pile out. I mean, when I was growing up with one of eight, my parents would have killed to have you this had, you had You had <laughs> seven siblings? I have seven siblings. Wow. Have I never mentioned that? No. Uh, yeah, no, you didn't have. Wow. I'm the youngest and by far the smallest of the, of the <laughs> So group. you got to ride in the back of the like Oldsmobile custom cruiser, right? The seats. Oh, that, we like... had the panel van. Oh. We had, we had the, the, the panel station wagon. Excellent. Um, yeah, we had a, we had a, a giant, oh, I'll have to ask my sisters because obviously they're, so, every, so my next closest sibling is 18 months older than me. And then I've got siblings that are, you know, 10, 12, 13 years older than me. Um, but I'll ask my sister, who is five years older than me. She was the one that mostly drove me around, you know, obviously until I could drive myself. And then everyone else was at college. So, yeah, I have siblings that I never really lived with. Wow. You know, because they were off. They were off to college before I was like really aware of what was happening. <laughs> <laughs> I just was. Sh- I was just shoved in any vehicle I could fit anywhere. <laughs> That's good though. You've so, got like yeah. your own little research, like focus group for <laughs> generational experience too. Like your your siblings. That's that's a. Ge- you've got siblings that are a generation older than you, basically. Yeah. No. Every everyone else in my family um, are baby boomers. Wow. To bring yeah. it with the Gen X. So, that's right. <laughs> well, and and they again they span. You know, a baby boomer. You know, the the, the younger they tend to be younger baby boomers. But uh, yeah, no, we have a big family, and and my have four brothers first and then two sisters and then my brother david and then me so uh you know my mother actually never drove in a minivan when i took her to when i took my parents to the um chrysler town and country launch in california in san diego in 2005 or six or something that was the first time my mother had ever been in a minivan wow <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so really yeah she, you're right. she was, probably would have loved to have something like that or something like oh. this denali you know when you guys were younger <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, and, and we, my, my father got a new car through his work every couple of years. So we were often in dad's new car, but I, but we still got cars pretty frequently, but 
you know, that's why I look at this and I think of those life stages and I think of, of, you know, when my brothers would come home from, from college or from wherever they were working at the time and, and suddenly you need this and that, you know, that elasticity of this vehicle uh, is, is really paramount in many, in many families, especially again, if you have, if you've done something crazy, like have eight children. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I know, uh, you know, a friend of mine, uh, Dave Derivitz, who used to be in, oh, yeah. in PR at, at uh, GM, he's, he's at Ford now, you know, he and his wife, he's got eight seven, kids, they, right? Uh, seven. Seven. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, you might want to check. Last time I checked, it was seven. Yeah. <laughs> Last time yeah. I checked, it was seven. I think you said uh, once you get over that three kid hump, like it's probably just like okay, yeah, bring. That, it's uh, totally relevant. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, back to the back to yeah, the Utah. Sorry. Look, it wasn't um, me that yeah. went down the rabbit hole this time. From, <laughs> from, from a functional standpoint, you know, it's 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 great. You know, it's got you know the latest generation of GM's infotainment system, which works really well. Um, you know, it's it's very responsive. Great screen in there. Um, speaking of screens, we'll have some more discussion of that later. And, and next week I'll have some complaints about a screen in another car, but, um, <laughs> but this one, you know, worked really well. It's got wireless Android auto and Apple CarPlay support, which, you know, this, I've had this in a number of vehicles. Now it's a great feature to have. Cause I can, I get in the car, I just drop my phone on the wireless charging pad and, and, you know, everything connects and it's, it's good. I do have one complaint about the interior design though, the shift mechanism uh, on this side. Yeah. Um, so as, as, as manufacturers have, uh, moved over to electronic shifters, shifting systems to their, for their, uh, uh, automatic transmissions, designers have come up with all kinds of <clears throat> different ways to actuate, you know, whether you want park, reverse, neutral drive. And, um, the one that's in this, in the Yukon, I don't like, um, it's the same yeah. one in the suburban, right? Where it's like push and mm. levers and. I'm not sure. I haven't driven the suburban. Yeah, I think I'm looking at it, and I think it it looks very similar. It's like the different shaped buttons, right? Like so. Well, yeah. On the on the Yukon, you have a a vertical stack of uh, switches that are much like the the window switches that we've become accustomed to over the last twenty years. Where, um, you know, on the uh, at least on the window switches, you know, you push down on it to to put the window down. You stick your finger, pull, put your fingertip underneath, and pull up to put the windows up. On this one. It's similar to that. There's no push down. You pull the switches towards you to activate, you know, to activate park or reverse or drive. Uh, only the neutral one is one that you push. And I don't know. I just, I did not like the the way it feels, the way it actuates. It's, you know, it's a I, I didn't very love compact it design, but I, I didn't like it. Yeah, I had it in the I have it in the uh, I had it in the suburban as well. And then they for ergonomics, they balance for 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 aesthetics, rather, they put a on the so on the right side of the screen in the suburban, they put this like random pocket, which actually is very handy for face masks and stuff like that. But it was kind of weird. It was like what what was supposed it looked like I was wondering what was supposed to be in there. But yes, I had I had to kind of practice and get used to it and figure out like uh, and I want to, yeah, I think they all levered out except for the neutral, right? That's what you said. Yeah. Yeah. Neutral, yeah that's neutral, that's yeah, how it was as well. In. Yes. Pushed in, which, you know, anytime, uh, anytime that we test these vehicles, that's like the first thing I practice in my driveway is how to shift yeah. because they're all different, you know, and, and 
my if I park in my upper driveway, when I back out into my street, it's it's not a busy street and it's even less so now, but it's a little bit of a blind corner. Somebody's not paying attention. So I need to get into drive as soon as possible. And so I always practice and some are easier than others. And this was it wasn't that it was complicated. It's just one more thing to learn. Well, it's yeah, it's, yeah I think that's part of it is, that you know, what they're trying to do and and the designers. um they they get this brief that they have to then interpret into mm. reality and, and say like you know you only have this much space and you've got to make the shift function fit in there and so they're they're kind of doing the best they can with that um, but it's almost like nobody stops to really try it and I don't I know that's not true but I I, I wish there was a way to really um, get user feedback and and have it be just some some way of, of considering like how how have we made this harder for people because it, it it's it's an easy thing once you are close to it so you spend you know four years developing a vehicle by the end of that development cycle you're gonna you're gonna shrug about it because it's 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 gonna be like second nature to you but then the person right. who buys the car and is used to i mean you could just use a column shift i know it's not not sexy. New uh, tech, no, you can't. But not in. No, you can't use a column shift. I mean, I get what you're Tesla talking does. about, and it and it certainly is. Tesla has a column shift. Really? Yeah. Well, but I mean, there's you know, it's it's the, the, what's the, the way it works in the Tesla is, isn't it? Don't yeah, they have Mercedes yeah, switch gear? Uh, yeah, it was, yeah, it was originally, weird. But, uh, but, uh, you know, I, I think they may make their own now, but, um, yeah, I mean, you, you just tap it down to put it in drive, tap it. Yeah. Up that's put different. It I'm thinking of like the, the old style. Yeah, no, not, it's not the old style I'm, column shift. I'm but. back in our, in our panel station. No, but, I mean, I, it, like there are ways, right. And if it's not, if, if it's on the column, like, you know, there's, there is that space where the mounting point is, is not used. I understand that it's, it's again, it, you know. It doesn't look innovative, and that's part of what you're trying to do, right? With the brand yeah. new cars, is look look how innovative we are, um, and and so there's some reinventing the wheel that goes on, and you don't want to pull from the parts bin for the Denali for sure. You don't want to grab like the shifter out of the bolt, <laughs> that, right? You know, is a reimagining of of the quadrant. So, well, the the bolt was a parts bin unit that they pulled from Cadillac. Oh well, see, then it fits. I, I, it's it, just it, the bolt shifter was originally used in the Cadillacs. <laughs> it's it's this is. The, we're never going to get insight into this decision-making process. Um, it's just the result of it has, yeah. has wound us up. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's just, I just, I don't like the way that particular shift system works. Um, you know, and they have, they have the a similar feel? one in the, in the Acadia. Yeah. Was it uh, the I, feel of it? Would you say? No, it's just, it, it doesn't, it, it, it's never really felt very natural or there's that word intuitive intuitive <laughs> um yeah i always find you know that i have to look around the steering uh, wheel to to figure it out yeah well that's part and, of it it's the buttons are they're all the same um yeah. and they're in different places so that's the, you know you think about a uh, a floor shift or a column shift and the, it's one thing you can reach out and you can grab it and you know you've got it and then you move it positionally and that tells you what what gear you're in this is four different buttons um, let alone the, the, the manual selection, which is another rocker. Like, yeah. Um, so that's confusing if you're, if you're trying to do it by, by touch, you know, I think one of the things, uh, drivers don't realize is how much they operate the vehicle by touch without looking, um, mm -hmm. until you get confused and then you wind up looking at stuff way too much and you hit things. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I certainly have that issue with plenty of center console shifters or, you know, a lot of these things, even if, even if it's a handle, like, um, what is it? The Honda, right. The Honda Odyssey has it kind of like yeah. on the, on the console, it's, on, it's the, on the, the console. Right. Yeah. Right. And so you still have to kind of look, but I know what you mean. Like with the Honda one, once it's as low as it goes, you know, you're in drive. And so it's not as, as opposed to the ones that I, that really mess me up are the ones that go into manual mode you know, by, right. by moving over. So at the same time, you've got to shift it to get it into drive. And then all of a sudden you're in manual mode and you find out when you're at 7,000 RPMs. <laughs> right. you know, so. like, why am I hitting the rev limiter? Oh, exactly. oh yeah. <laughs> well, what, so. why is the car rolling forward down the <laughs> yeah. driveway? You know? yeah. <laughs> For sure. Uh, so no, I think, you know, the, the challenge when they're making these decisions, I think is, what are what's the alternative? And we don't know what this looks like at the very beginning. I mean, and the worst thing you want to do is engineer by compromise. But there is some element of saying, OK, we know this is the space that we have to put some kind of mechanism in. And there is an aesthetic you know, design standpoint, certainly as well. But I don't know. I kind of got used to it after a while. Again, I didn't love it, but it wasn't a deal breaker and, for me. You know, I mean, it if, was if I was, in the Acadia, if I was though, right? for a month that, it, yeah, yeah, you know, you know, or, you know, six months, you know, it would probably be fine. But so, but the Acadia one, I recall that was lower down on the, yeah. on right on the center console. And my issue was that with that was that sometimes things were in the way. Cause like I would have put like a, a, you know, a face mask or my phone or something, you know, or a piece of paper or something. So that was my complaint with the position of where it was in the Acadia, which I definitely think they should have figured out in testing and focus groups and all that stuff that they are supposed to do that, that is supposed to, you know, get this kind of stuff out of the, of the equation. But that was, that was, as I recall, that was one of my, my complaints with where, the buttons were on that Acadia, which was very, very controversial when that came out anyway. Yeah. So aside from that, you know, it's a great truck, great, great SUV. <laughs> All that being said. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm, I'm kind of jealous that you two have had a chance to drive this and I haven't because it does look lovely and I do like big trucks, big SUVs. So. And you cannot lie. I cannot yeah. lie. <laughs> Now I want to get into the Escalade with its 37-inch display. Um, <laughs> yeah, big displays are not my thing, but uh, I, yeah. I do. Uh, yeah, we'll get to the, we'll get to that. We'll get to the displays. <laughs> um, but you know, Rebecca, you and I, we actually, so we both have the same, almost the same car this week, and the other car you've got, uh, I had not too long ago. So um, why don't why don't you take the rest of the the garage segment and I'll just, I'll kick in with my charming, uh, witty repartee about the, uh, the Subaru Crosstrek and the, uh, the Kia K5 GT line. Okay. Why don't I do the Crosstrek first? Sure. Because have we all driven this now? Sam, have you had it? No, I have not. I've, I haven't had any Subarus for a while. And this is the, oh, okay. the Crosstrek Sport, right? Yeah, I had the limited. Oh, I had the limited. Okay. I had the, yes, I had the Sport. So I went on the launch, actually. This is one of the few launches that, I, I went on uh, this year, you know, certainly I think it was back in September and um, and I liked the car then and I like it now. It just what oh, that's what it. We're came, done. That's it. We're all Good. done. My one. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so 
So what I liked about the one that I had was the Crosstrek Limited. Uh, the overall Crosstrek line, there's five models there. there the base Crosstrek actually has a six-speed manual transmission to it. Um, that's a 2.0 liter uh, four-cylinder engine. And that, that starts at about 22,000. It's got some nice bells and whistles. Of course, it has all-wheel drive and such. But uh, anything above the, the, there's the premium, which is 23,000 adds a couple of bells and whistles, but really not much where in my mind for our listeners, I would start at the Crosstrek Sport. I had the limited and there's actually the Crosstrek hybrid, mm -hmm. which is uh, limited availability. And I, frankly, I haven't done a lot of research onto where it's available, but it is out there for, um, particularly for, you know, what we would describe as the typical, uh, Subaru owner, this may be a priority for them, which I, I appreciate. So the limited that I had has a 2.5 liter four cylinder engine in it. Uh, it's got about, uh, it's got 182 horsepower, 176 pound foot torque. I know I should know that roll off the tongue. It never will. Um, this one, it has the CVT with the eight speed manual mode. And I really liked it. You know, all CVTs struggle sometimes, but this was super zippy on the highway. It's, I love this size vehicle. It's definitely only five passenger, probably ideally four. Um, but it's just a great runabout. It's got room in the back. It's, you know, so it, it's a lot of that flexibility that we were talking about with the Yukon, but you're not hauling around a Japanese apartment when you don't need it. <laughs> you know, this is just that like fun, you know, ideal size for certainly for a single, maybe one kid kind of family. But I just, I love this. Is This is my, you know, my, my personal vehicle, my Buick Encore Coco is about this size and, and I just love this size vehicle, especially for that urban suburban lifestyle that I have. And, you know, so it just it just did a lot of things really well. The infotainment system uh, was actually pretty good. Uh, I didn't really have any definitive issues with it, which is a miracle for me, of course, as always. <laughs> and I feel like the features in it are really nice. You know, it's got especially again, I'm at the. I'm at the top of the line with the limited. So it's got some nice leather interior. It's got an 18 inch alloy wheels. Um, they do have a vegan interior as well. Startex. Uh, as, I'm sorry. It's, uh, that's what I had in the sport. It's called Startex. It's, uh, yes. Yeah. And Which I, is really good. I, yeah, I liked it a lot. Um, the, and it's funny, the sport is basically like a, a less luxury outfitted version of the, the limited. They're really almost the same car. They are. Yes, very much so. And and they've done a good job with saying, you know, if you want that sport, that is going to be something that is more athletic, um, definitely less luxurious, but very lifestyle oriented. You know, um, they all have what's called um, what again from from sport limited and the hybrid, they have what's called X mode, which unfortunately I didn't really get to use because it's more like deep snow mud kind of um situation um but it's there again if you need it and unfortunately we didn't have any snow for me to try out because that would have been a lot of fun I, yeah i find that um because that basically locks the 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 different like the, diff, the center, yeah. center differential um i usually try to drive the cars that have that kind of feature like four-wheel drive and stuff i try to drive them into the snowbank in front of the house in the winter <laughs> and try to get them stuck and and the lock mode like that's really all that most people need is is like the occasional all-wheel drive that you can just 
you, you can lock. You don't need auto or anything like that. You just hit lock mode and you get all four wheels sort of pulling for you. And you, you can get out of those common situations where you might get stuck. Yeah, because when I when I went on the launch, we did take it off road. And, you know, again, the size is super fun off road because you can fit it in places um, that, you know, without getting stuck. And so, you know, it goes around. I mean, there's you know great opportunity to to uh, take it off road, get some get a little mud on the tires uh, from a comfort standpoint. I think the only thing that surprised and disappointed me a little bit is that there's no heated steering wheel, which I know is silly, but. For people, Listen, you know, this is very limited. much of it's... a New England car, right? <laughs> you know, like this is like I would have expected a heated steering wheel in this thing. I'm not going to lie, and I would have paid for it. I, I think I, a lot I, of people I'm would to pay the point for now it. where it's I like it. I just it's a feature I want in my next car. Like... So I remember I I think it must have been 2010. My first BMW X3. That was the first time that I had a, a heated steering wheel, and my German colleagues thought it was the stupidest thing in the entire world. And I was like, you just wait. You wait. And now they've taken over the world. <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, and and I, I really found that the I feel much the same way about the the Crosstrek. It's just it's a super handy size. It's it's basically an Impreza hatch that's got a little bit more ride height. Um, I, I love the the description as a runabout. I think that's that's perfect. Uh, it's it's one of those like Sam, you were saying, you know, most people rationally don't need the SUV to do everything. <laughs> this is the perfect example. This card basically just does just about everything you need most of the time. It's a lot more efficient than a mm -hmm. Suburban. Um, and it, it has that all-weather uh, capability that, again, you, you probably were buying comfort. You, you don't need it most of the time. It's going to be great on just winter tires, um, but it's, it's there uh, if you need and it. And it'll probably fit in your garage. It'll absolutely yeah. fit in your garage. <laughs> well, you know, and you cars these days are bigger than, than they you know, seem anyway, but... Uh, yeah. Well, you know, it, one of the, um, you know, we've mentioned Jill Simonello before. One of the things that I like that she does uh, every week when she gets cars is she actually tests, you know, tests to see if they will fit in her garage. Yes. And a lot of the big trucks and SUVs are too long. Yeah. Yeah. And she's in Chicago. She in, she's in urban Chicago. I think she's in uh, town. I think, they just, I think they just moved. I don't know okay. exactly where they are in okay. Chicago, you know, how urban or suburban they are. She but, should come yeah. 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 But she does have a standard size garage. And, right. and, and a lot of these things don't fit. Yeah. I, yeah. No, it's a, it's a great test. Uh, she's and she's on she's on TikTok as well. And uh, and she does a lot of really good things on, on that platform. And so I would encourage people to to check out Jill Simonelli, C-I-M-I-N. And then it goes from there. I'll, I'll, put, it, I'll, <laughs> I'll put it in the show notes. Uh, we, we so it keeps going. I, I'm just not lucky enough to have a garage over over 20 years. It's like uh, things I like, have a garage. It's filled with crap. I'm well, that's what I mean. <laughs> Our, our garage is, is reserved for, for the Miata and my wife's car. Yeah. So. Yes. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, no, that, that is a good point that it, it basically does fit just about anywhere. And it, it handles those teenager grocery loads pretty, pretty well. Cause I, I certainly used it for that. It, it's, you know, and, and it's, it has a real uh, cross generational appeal. Um, mm. You know, folks that are younger and just sort of looking for their first car are going to need something that's kind of all purpose perfect for that yep. and it's priced really well for that or you know folks like my parents who are not going to be buying a whole lot more cars uh, but they need something that's just going to going to get them there and isn't going to be enormous it's going to be easy to drive easy to get in and out of that extra ride height helps you when you've got uh, older hips um, yes. you, you know so it, it's it's just you know Subaru making a really competitive product it's, it's pretty compelling and it has um, uh, the eyesight uh, 
forward collision warning and dynamic cruise and all of those those goodies. Yeah, you know, one thing about that, I'm glad you brought that up because I remember on the launch, I I was kind of, I was, it was a little distracting because the eyesight requires a pretty large case, uh, a, a, a box just to the left of the rear view mirror. And I remember in the launch sitting in it and being like, what is that? And once I figured out what it was, it wasn't distracting, but I actually didn't have that same feeling in this particular vehicle. I remember looking at it, but, and part of it was, I knew what it was, but that is, you know, the visibility in this vehicle is really excellent. I will say that you have to just, just train your eye and just be like, oh, that's the eyesight thing. Cause it is pretty bulky yeah. uh, initially. Yeah. So for, for those not familiar with eyesight, you know, instead of using radar for the adaptive cruise control, like, like most manufacturers do, uh, Subaru has a system that uses stereo cameras and most forward view cameras for the forward collision alert. They're it's just a single, it's a monovision camera mounted right above the mirror. This one has two cameras on either side of the mirror, and you have to have that distance between them that they use um, using the parallax to, to estimate the distance to the, the vehicle in front of you. And so that's why it's it's a larger package than what you typically find in most modern cars. Yeah. And we spoke. I remember when I had this vehicle, we spoke more at length about this in a previous uh, wheel bearings. I remember you gave that really helpful explanation as well. So, but you know, just, I mean, overall, it was just a fun vehicle. And I don't know if I mentioned, so the one that I had was 31,000 and change delivered uh, destinations, just over a thousand dollars. And as, as Dan, you just said, you know, the pricing on it is really competitive. You're, I feel like you're getting a lot of good value for, 28 to 30,000 yep. and, you know, pretty decent fuel economy. It's rated for 34 highway 27 city. I got a little bit less than that, yeah. but I also, I know that I had more idle time. I, I was taking quite a few pictures. I, and I had the engine running cause I kept moving the car because my typical, the beach is, is blocked off now. And so I have to kind of maneuver where I want to take some pictures. Uh, but I think I was kind of in that like mid twenties range. So it wasn't fantastic, yeah. but it wasn't terrible. I generally just expect that a Subaru is going to get about 25 miles per gallon. That's yes. Just, you know. Yeah. I think that's a reasonable <laughs> assumption. I do remember also um, around so shortly after this vehicle came out, I did an article uh, back when I was writing for Forbes about um perfect vehicles in a post Sandy world right after hurricane Sandy hit the East coast. And I remember the, the ride height on this was about in that eight to nine inch range. And that was perfect for kind of, you know, maneuvering around tree branches that were there a lot. And, and that fuel economy came into play as well because it was pretty good. And so it just, this was, I remember this was one of my favorite vehicles for that kind of do everything, go anywhere without, being burdened by something so huge that it was, it got in the way. So, yeah. you know, I just, it was just a good experience. I was kind of sad to see it go because I just liked it. Yeah. But the, the one thing I, I, I think it leaves an impression with me is like, it does all of those things very well. I just wish it were a little quieter. Um, it's, it's got a little yeah, bit of Yeah, I can get behind that. Um, but I did, but I kept, but I've had worse cars. That's true. Because I know I definitely <laughs> have had cars where I wanted, I kept making sure that the, the windows, windows were up. Yeah. <laughs> 
yeah. <laughs> and that's never good. <clears throat> the other thing too is, you know, I, I get, I have the opportunity to drive on both 95, uh, which is, has trucks and the very picturesque route 15 or Merritt Parkway, which is a two lane cars only road. And, you know, that's a very beautiful drive. You know, it's, it's, um, there's a lot of trees and, and it's quieter from a vehicle standpoint. Uh, but it's, but it's very, very hilly as well. And this did well. I mean, again, the, a little bit of a wine going up some of the steepest hills there. But then when I was on 95, I didn't feel like I was going to be swallowed up by a truck any yeah. more than in any other vehicle. And so it's always that balance to see like, how does this perform? I will say, I don't think I took the, the Miata on 95 <laughs> because I was afraid. It's just spirit of bravery. Come on. Um, so, you know, well, let's, let's move to the, uh, the Kia K5 yes. uh, because that's another car. I think we both feel is a, uh, I, I just I, I so I got into it and I looked around and it's just this is the GT line. This is not the GT. It's the GT line, which is apparently different. Um, and uh, I just looked around and, and then I drove it and it it's just so beautifully executed. It and I looked at the prices. Twenty eight thousand dollars is the the bottom line on on the sticker for mine. And I that's just an astoundingly good car for that money. And yes. And I think mine is 31 because I have all wheel drive. Do you have all wheel drive? I don't think I do. I think mine okay, is just, yeah. and it's the 1.6 no, right. turbo in mine. And, and people everywhere I have gone with this thing, whether it's downtown Greenwich, my pizza guy came out and looked at it. Um, everybody comments on this thing because I mean, my postman, actually, he knocked on my door wow. to talk to me about this car <laughs> because it's that gorgeous putty gray that we were trying to figure out how to describe it. I mean, it's sort of that, like I've heard it described as like that China gray, but it's that like, it has that really rich, almost flat. Yeah. Flat, but dynamic. That doesn't make any sense. I realize, you know, and you have the same color. I, yeah. It's got like a, I think it's, to it. I think it's similar to the, the gray that Mazda uses on the three as well. Yeah. And, and Audi uses it. Yeah. Audi has it. Um, Cause there's an a four at the bottom of the street. Um, that I told my postman about to go look at as well. <laughs> yeah, it, it doesn't have that sparkle of a metallic paint or a lot of other colors, but right. The clear coat is uh, the clear coat is very muted in terms of a real metallic finish to it, but it's gorgeous. Yeah, it so. looks really, really sharp. And and with the GT line, you know, you get the 18 inch alloys that really get set off nicely against against that monochromatic kind of body treatment and. You know, it's just there's just really, really careful design work that's, you know, it's striking and it, it, it's not expensive. You know, the, the uh, without it looks expensive, it does. It looks expensive. But without some of the options that mine had, this would have been a twenty six thousand dollar car, which is like, yeah, no, absolutely. It really is. I'm, I'm looking real quick because there is a difference. And you're right. The GT line versus GT. Right. So the GT, the GT line, which is what we have, is the 1.6 liter four cylinder. The GT is the 2.5 liter four right. cylinder. So the so GT, it's, GT line is based on the LXS trim level, um, okay. whereas the GT is its own trim level. And it does it has right. that turbo 2.5 that has almost. It's almost like the GT line is more cosmetic, and the GT is actual performance. Yeah, which is is fine because uh, a lot of times. People just want the, the the looks, and it it looks great. It's and it's great to drive. I was really pleased with it dynamically. I took it down some of my favorite twisty back roads, and yep. it was really satisfying. 
I honestly didn't feel the need for more power in it. Um, it might actually be more of a mess dynamically if it has yeah. more power. Um, so I, the only complaint that I had was I did not love the exhaust note when it was in the standard mode. Oh. So when it's in, I, it, it sound, and I mentioned this on the last podcast that I was driving a car that sort of sounded like a motorboat. I didn't love that. I felt like they missed the opportunity to add some bass. Now it's better when I put it in sport. See, I've and been driving it in sport mode. So all um, sorts of fun, huh. but I would be curious as to if, if you have that same, but that was, that was my only complaint with it. I was kind of like, what is that noise? Like, Oh my goodness, that's a terrible, it just, I don't know. It didn't have a throatiness. I felt like it was missing the throatiness that I wanted and probably exists in the GT. Uh, but, but the, the GT line, I didn't love that initial exhaust note again, putting it in sport, sport plus, all that goes away. It's tons of fun. And I love the fact that you can change the driving mode on the fly and you feel it right away. Yeah. As soon as you like, as soon as you put it into sport, you feel the car tighten up a little bit. You feel the RPMs, you know, they, they get a little bit more exaggerated. The steering tightens up. Everything kind of gets more fun. Yeah. And that's the, the, the way it steers, the way it rides and handles uh, was was impressive to me. That's that's where I think all those Germans they've bought have done a really good job because <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it does. It, it actually reminds me of the way Sobs used to drive and and you know, it has that different styling that sort of makes him stand out. So it's, it's got that sobby feel to me. And maybe it's just me sort of uh, tying it to that other other brand that's, that has that discipline, but has its own own sort of way of going about it um yeah like sobs used to do uh but it, yeah it was, it's a really pleasant car i like how the interior is uh it's not leather it's 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 faux leather which is fine it looks nice it's um leatherette and cloth seat trim looks really good the seats are pretty comfortable uh this mine has the the red interior package which i guess is a, yes um, yep mine has that too gt line thing looks great against the, the gray paint um yeah and i the love rims how, are fabulous yeah it's just and it's thought thoughtfully designed you know like you talk about having a place for your phone is something that a lot of cars mm. sometimes miss on this has a nice uh key uh she charger you know wireless charger right there in the center console you just top you know, pop your phone right down into it and it, it, uh, is out of the way, but it's still right at hand if you, you need to use it for something. And, uh, I, I don't think it has wireless CarPlay, which I kind of, it does not. Know. Cause I, I played around with that yesterday because I needed to charge my phone and I wanted to try that wireless charger, which you're right. It kind of slots in it keeps it really nice and secure, yeah. but it doesn't have the wireless Apple CarPlay, Android Auto. Yeah, it does have Android Auto, Apple CarPlay. It's just not wireless. Yeah, and and you know you can easily pair with Bluetooth and get most yeah. of the phone functionality, but you're you're going to miss out on the other stuff that you get from those those systems. Yeah, and I will say because we've talked about this a lot since my experience with Mazda, I it's there is some native voice function, but for the most part, it does require using the Google Assist when you have like Android Auto, Apple CarPlay. Um, activated but it's actually worked out pretty well the only thing is they've got these nature scene sounds because <laughs> so mine doesn't have sirius xm on it so it's you know am fm and then these nature scenes that are like nails on a chalkboard wait, wait, i mean yesterday nature? i'm in the car saying make it stop make it wait, stop like it plays like background noise oh like it, it's 
it's like like there's one that's fireplace and it's like the crickling and crinking of oh, that's a like fireplace a kid in the back seat with a like a, a uh, snap oh, every single one of these sounds of nature thing is like that they have snow village and it's the sound of somebody walking in the snow I mean, even now I'm like just cringing, just thinking it's, about it. I'm like, make it stop, make it, it stop. Does this while you drive? <laughs> yes. This this is one of the media options, huh. and oh my gosh, it is just I don't again like who who thought that was a good idea? Well, you know, it's, I it's don't interesting. Know. Like I I noticed a lot of the Korean cars would um, play little songs for you when you shut them off and get in. Uh, that yeah. started a few years ago, and so I, that's like my dish, my um Samsung yeah. washer and dryer uh, does that. Crazy. Does too. So I wonder oh. if it's just like a cultural thing where where maybe. Um, you know, that that's just something that uh, delights those that market customers in that market that we're we're now getting as a benefit. Yeah, um, maybe. And, and I don't know. But that that's got I mean, I was going to reach out to James Bell, who we all know uh, his head of PR at Kia and just be like, make it stop. <laughs> <laughs> or at least like let us put in the sounds that we want to hear. Maybe I want to hear a machine shop. <laughs> uh, well, there you go. See, excellent. But yeah, there's like eight of these wow. um, sounds of nature thing, and I I tried all of them, and all of them made my skin and you, crawl. You hated so. all. Of them. That's excellent. Uh, well, I haven't played with that. I, I I don't have a ton of seat time in in the K5 yet, uh, but it's really really well executed design wise. Obviously, you can see that it's fantastic um, materials wise. Once you actually get in it and experience it, it's also really good. Everything feels good. Everything looks good. The yeah. switch gear, the materials um, it's and pricing. It's really, really competitive uh, driving wise. It's very pleasing. So it's, it's a really well-rounded package. It's uh, I guess the only sort of criticism I can, I can offer is the, the trunk uh, the opening on it sucks a little bit like most modern sedans because they have that that roof line. That yeah, back. this could have easily been a hatch, a hidden hatch. Yeah, and it, it probably should have been, you know, more like the yeah. Stinger. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Right. I, yeah, I mean, cause... I think most sedans should go that way anyway, because otherwise the way the styling is, uh, you lose the ability to get stuff in and out of the cargo area. Yeah, I mean, yeah. You, you, you can do it without changing the shape of the vehicle. Right. Um, it you know there there are it it will add some cost and probably some weight because now you have this big hole in the back of your structure so you've got to reinforce it in other ways you know and then you know the hatch itself the hatch mechanism you know is is going to add some weight so that may be the reason why they don't do it um but from a a functional standpoint it would make so much more sense to just make these things hatchbacks you know, in it, that it would. Audi A7, you know, Kia Stinger kind of uh, yeah. style. And we should we should make sure that our listeners know. So this 2021 Kia K5 midsize sedan replaces the 2020 Kia Optima. So right. they're going to this different na- naming convention um, that actually does reflect more of what they have in Korea in their home market. So if you're looking for the Kia Optima, it's now called the K5, um, but it is really, really good. The other thing, too, talking about the visi- uh, some of the visibility things I, with that sloping roof line, then become comes a pretty, pretty narrow 
rear view. I found it to be, I mean, I'm used to, I've, uh, because I've had so many hatchbacks over the years, but I did, I had my sister sit in it yesterday for me and kind of move around to see how the visibility is. I think that if you have three people sitting in that back for even a short drive, I do think that there might be a little bit of visibility issues. She sat in it and it's fairly wide in the back, so it wasn't as bad as I feared. But I do think that some I could see some people on a test drive being a little bit thrown off by the very narrow rear window. Yeah, you're going to need your mirrors if you've got a full load of passengers in there. Or a camera yes. mirror system. Yeah, like the, the camera like the mirror had. system would be fantastic in this yeah. Yeah. for sure. Yeah. But overall, I mean, it's just I, it's as I said, everybody has commented on it. Every time I've driven it, somebody has has stopped me, you know, waved me down at one point. And again, the you know, postmen, other people that I've I've encountered um, have have said, you know, what what is that? Because um, also in the back, it's got that cool. The third uh, taillight is like it goes all the way mm. across. So at night, it's very dramatic looking as well. And and the way that they've trimmed this out, it's just it's it's a really really sharp vehicle it looks far more expensive than it is and it's it's working for them apparently um kia had a pretty good year even this year yeah <laughs> or, yeah or in well I'm, I'm looking i'm i'm getting one next week i'm getting an ex next week so i'm looking forward to trying this cool. one out oh, good. I, 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 you I know, i've been a, a fan of the optima yeah i love that it's a mid-level trim that that we're all kind of getting you know the the uh it's always easy to charm people with the the highest trim level um so right putting out something that's that's not the the fanciest version gives us a really good chance to sort of see what what people are actually buying and how it holds up. Yes, for sure. The events of this week led to a lot of wailing and <laughs> gnashing of teeth. Um, and, and we're not going to talk about those. Well, I, it may not be the <laughs> well, events that you well, think about. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, the, mainly, I just I'm thinking of the GM logo that, that set the <laughs> yes. Internet on fire. Uh, the other day and and um, I had some initial thoughts and I've kind of taken a step back because I knew I was going to do this and and so initially it's it's change and most people hate change and so sure I looked at it first and I was like <laughs> I hate it and now I'm kind of like at the end of the day it just makes you shrug um, but GM unveiled a new logo and uh, Sam you watched the uh, the presentation so what did what did they say what's no. their excuse <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, excuses, excuses. <clears throat> so, um, yeah, I was on the call with uh, Deborah Wall, who's uh, GM's new chief marketing officer. She joined, uh, what, a year and a half ago, I guess, something like that. Um, you know, they GM, you know, is not a company that has changed its logo very frequently. You know, it the, the basic logo it's had, you know, the blue square with the uppercase GM and the bar has been around since the early 1960s. You know, it's been tweaked a couple times going from just a flat blue to uh you know a gradient that makes it look metallic but you know it's basically been you know largely unchanged for the last 60 years and this is the most dramatic change they've ever done um they've basically made it look like an iphone app icon um you know a rounded square uh you know with lower lowercase g and m uh you know, that uh, was something that somebody pointed out on Twitter the other day uh, after it came up, after it became public, 
was, um, yeah, it looks like an elephant standing on a riverbank yeah. getting a drink. <laughs> Once you see um, that, you can't unsee it, huh? <laughs> nope. Just, just like the arrow in the FedEx logo. Yeah. Well, I mean, the arrow is supposed to be there. I don't think the elephant is Exactly. Supposed to be there. The arrow makes yeah, sense. I, I, don't, I, don't think, I don't think the designers at GM actually intended for this thing to look like an elephant. Um, oh, but my goodness. The, you know, one, there is one other little detail in there that, that she did point out uh, that, that actually does make sense and, you know, that was intentional. And that's... The negative space. So the previous up up until now, the the bar has always been under both the G and the M. Now it's just under the M. Uh, so like the lowercase G, the <clears throat> the bottom part of it kind of hangs down adjacent to the bar, and the the negative space between the M and the bar. When you look at it now, it looks like a plug, which is supposed to symbolize GM's transition to being an electric vehicle company. Um, so it's there. I don't know how I'm many people sure are actually going to notice it. They paid a lot of money for that. Yeah. Well, I, yeah. well, it was designed internally by by their designers, by their oh, design it was. team. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I, I will um, say, like, um, and I, I said this on on Twitter too. Um, you're deal, like you said that that logo, that the current logo or the the existing logo goes back sixty years. This brand stuff is hard, um, and yeah. it's you know once you change a. Uh, a brand image that's been around for 60 years, you're never going to please everybody. And you have to put in this out, case, maybe not anybody. Right. And, <laughs> and you have to, and when you talk about it, you're talking in terms of uh, design philosophy. And so it, it's, it moves from being really concrete to almost a, a higher minded uh, creative discussion where you have to explain a lot of ideas and ideals and, imagination and those elements that are in there they're not necessarily obvious like i because there's so much negative space in here i would not have really gotten it's not a strong call to to it being like a plug there in the negative space of the m but i can i can see it but it's not not as strong as I would want. And I'm sure this went through a lot of certainly not as strong as the elephant. Yeah. Um, (laughs) It reminded me, my brother does a lot of work with E3, this big trade show. And it kind of reminded me of some of, of an E the E3 logos and some of the work that exists in that space. Yeah. And it's, you know, I, I I like what they're trying to do with um, tie the brand to a more modern image. And it does look like an icon. And I think it's probably intentional with the radius mm-hmm. corners and um, going to the lowercase text, which everybody seems to be doing <laughs> because that's the way you say you're hip and cool and high tech is like, Oh, we just throw out capitals. <laughs> yeah. So, and when, while we're on the subject of logos, Kia's logo, uh, it's new logo. Yeah, Kia's logo happened. I, I actually I, like the Kia logo. You know what? I, I don't like it because taken out of context, I have no idea what it is. It looks like KN. I'm in. I, I don't know what it is. I mean, when if I just look at it, I don't. I would never look at Kia's new logo and say that is Kia. Yeah. Well, I think you know the the bigger you know something something else to consider here is you know the Kia logo actually appears on all Kia vehicles. Yes. I, the GM logo yes. does never never appears on a GM vehicle. Well, and it's there's there's only been two times in the company's history when it has appeared. The first time the GM logo actually ever appeared on a GM vehicle was in 1996 when they launched the EV1. 
And yeah. that, you know, because that one was, did not, that car did not belong to any of the existing brands. It was the GM EV1, not a Chevrolet or a Buick or Pontiac. It was a GM EV1. That was the first time they ever used the GM logo on a, a vehicle from General Motors. Then between 2005 and 2010, they, um, they had the idea to put the little GM badge on the fender of all the cars. And they, they dropped that in 2010. Um, and, and this new logo will not be appearing on any GM vehicles. So it, right now it, it won't be. No, De- De- Deborah Wall was asked, you know, is this going to be on vehicles? And she said, no, it's it's not going to be. A, they're not going to use it on vehicles. It's only for, you know, their corporate identity for the signage and letterhead, you know, in the factories and things like that. But it's not going to be a, it's not going to be used on vehicles. There's no there's no plan to use it on vehicles. So, you know, the, the truth is it really doesn't actually matter if people like it or not, because, (laughs) you know, when people go buy shop for cars, you know, they, they, they don't, you know, they don't go shopping for a GM vehicle. They go shopping for a Chevrolet or a GMC or a Buick or a Cadillac. It's funny. I was thinking about that because you're right. And a lot of people don't even know the GM, what brands fall under the GM umbrella. So, so you know, they, they don't know that. And so you're right. This isn't, and, and it is a big difference between Kia and GM. This is GM is more of a, of a wall street nomenclature than mm-hmm. a consumer. And, and, and the reality is, you know, this, this change in the logo may actually be designed to appeal more to, you know, wall street than to, right. you know, consumers. It's more of a corporate image yes, than, exactly. a, than a consumer retail well, speaking, but speaking of corporate image, so, you know, the, the part that actually is important about what they announced on Friday, I think is more important than the logo is this new ad campaign, this marketing campaign that they're launching, which is called Everybody In. With an emphasis um, on the EV, which I, I yes. actually like that quite a bit. I think it's clever. Yeah. And so, um, you know, the the um, Everybody In campaign is going to be about promoting GM's transition to electrification. And the whole premise around it is that, uh, you know, EVs aren't just for, you know, environmentalists now, you know, or, you know, for early adopters. We're going to have EVs for everybody. And, you know, hence the everybody in, you know, uh, tagline. And, you know, unfortunately, the first ad, you know, has too much emphasis on Malcolm Gladwell. But, um, you know, they're going to this is going to be an ongoing campaign over the next at least the next couple of years as they start to launch all these new EVs starting later this year with the, the Hummer uh, EV and, and various others th- and the Cadillac Lyric early next year. And I think on, on Tuesday, uh, we're recording this on Sunday morning on Tuesday at virtual CES, um, Mary Barra, the CEO is going to be doing a keynote and she's expected to make some additional announcements about other products that are coming. Other EV products that are coming from GM uh, including probably a Chevy electric pickup truck, uh, which may even launch this year. I, I wouldn't be surprised if it does launch this year alongside the Hummer. So I think as with anything, anything like this, um, you, you get a reaction and that's the best you can hope for is that love it or hate it. People are looking at it and talking about GM. They're not talking yeah. about Tesla. They're not talking about Ford. They're talking about GM and how much they, don't like the logo, but then that's the opportunity for you to ask, what were they thinking? And then, well, here's what they were thinking. And that's, then you can explain. That's a good point. So uh, yeah, I, 
people can hate it. That's fine. <laughs> you know, um, and it's it's tough because like, you, you're not just designing a logo. You're designing a logo system. And so it's got to work on letterhead. It's got to work with the lockup. It's got to work on signs. It's got to work on the website. There's a lot of different uh, considerations for it. Um, and and so it, it's not. It's not the task that, you know, the constant criticism when logos or branding um, are redone is that, well, I could have done that with like, you know, 20 bucks and an intern. Uh, yes, you you could have made a, a single logo with 20 bucks and an intern. That's fine. But you would have struggled just as much with 200 stakeholders <laughs> and a staff of 30. Like it. <laughs> And and a, a checklist that you've got to to meet all of these divergent directives. Remember, Jim's a big company, and branding is like a, a big deal to them. And, so and globally, that, yeah, and a, yeah. a big global company as well. Yeah, that's yeah, a, a good point. And you know, has you know, have you ever decided not to buy a particular vehicle because you didn't like the logo? No, I usually <laughs> has, decide has not ever, to buy them. Has that ever even them. remotely factored into a purchase decision for a vehicle? No, but the but the brand, the company, you know, I mean, look, Tesla has primarily made its fortunes on this brand image. So it does. It, uh, it's it, part. It's, yeah. it's part of the puzzle. It's all part of the of the puzzle. You know, I mean, I would argue that in fashion, people have people buy the Louis Vuitton, oh, yeah. you know, like fashion is very different. But as we move into EVs, it is a, you know, and, and almost cars almost get agnostic because they're all kind of the same, then it will be more important to establish brand and what that looks like. Yeah. But I mean, people buy, you know, fashion items, purses and other items exclusively because of the logo that's on there. It's a very different kind of purchase decision. Right. There's a lot psychologically we can pull on that thread. (laughs) We should just. Let's not do that today. (laughs) Cars are definitely fashion, um, but. uh, But very different. Yeah, not not the logo per se. The other thing that we saw launch, we can stay in the States for now, um, was the uh, Jeep Grand Cherokee L. Uh, So there's a new generation of the Grand Cherokee, which is the first since. Well, I guess the current Grand Cherokee stretches all the way back. Our architecture-wise, to the 2005 uh, WK, and then the 2011 WK2 is basically what we're, we've still got. So it's roughly a 10-year-old car right now on 15-year-old architecture um, that was inherited from Mercedes. There's a lot of uh, M-Class in the WKs. Uh, so there's now a new Jeep Grand Cherokee. It's got a third row now which is something that uh i think consumers have been looking for and um they're going to launch with the 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 so you have the option you'll have the option for three rows and two rows that they're launching with three row first the two row will follow on uh later in the year styling seems to pick up a bit from the the grand wagoneer but they're definitely not the same platform um i was looking at it and reading the press release and as a grand Cherokee owner, I'm completely biased, but I really like it. Uh, what did you guys think? I think it looks great. My, my only question is I, I thought one of the differentiators for the upcoming grand Wagoneer is that it had three rows and maybe it's just, maybe that's the, the, the grand Wagoneer is significantly larger than this. Well, that's yeah. So as we're going to say, it was, you know, it's they're 
they're probably speaking to two different people and maybe the difference between some of the Yukons that we talked about earlier and such. But so I think this is a really, really smart move. There's a lot of people, you know, we talked earlier about utility and maybe you only use this once or twice, but it's really nice to know that it's there. Uh, and, and, you know, a, certainly a longer seven inches longer is always helpful. Uh, so I think this is a really, really smart move, long overdue. There's so much competition in this space. And this is a good example of where Jeep Grand Cherokee has got to stay current as more and more vehicles move into a, a place where they you dominated for so long. Yeah, well, and it's not like a three row on the WK2 architecture hasn't existed. You know, they've had the... The they had the commander for all. Oh yeah, and the yeah. commander. Um, so basically, the the commander was a three row Grand Cherokee back in the early two thousands or early mid two thousands. And then yeah, but it didn't look the same, right? And and the Durango is exactly a three row Grand Cherokee now, but there's but it's a Dodge, right? I think there's there's <laughs> a there's a purchase consideration decision for the brand that uh, people who would buy a Jeep might not consider a Dodge, even though it's the same thing. Uh, yeah, it doesn't just, matter. Yeah. Uh, so I think it's smart <laughs> that they're making a three row um, in, in this size. And it's kind of like how uh, GM makes the, the um, what is it, the Traverse? You can get a three row Traverse. Uh, uh, yeah, the, well, all, yeah. The, all three, the Traverse, the Buick uh, Enclave and the GMC Acadia are all available as three rows. Right. And but they also make the larger full size uh, SUVs that have three rows. So I think it's it's sort of that kind of parody where they're they're looking to fill that hole that would. Push yeah, I them. mean the difference GMs one is car based and one is truck based. Yeah, those two difference. Right. You know that. Yeah, well, and and that's true here. Well, I mean here the the Grand Cherokee is a unibody. unibody it's not car, right? it's not car based, but it is a unibody right. structure. Whereas the Grand the Wagoneer and Grand Wagoneer are derived from the Ram platform. So it's a body on frame. Right. Like the like the the Yukon and Tahoe and, and the expedition. And the, the new Grand Cherokee is new architecture. What exactly platform is it on? <laughs> Uh, it's, it's new. It's, it's all new. They, they haven't given a whole lot of technical detail on it yet. Hmm. Um, but <clears throat> independent suspension all around multi-link, uh, suspension front and rear. Um, it's launching just with the, uh, Pentastar and the 5.7 liter Hemi, but there will be a plug-in hybrid, uh, available later in the year, uh, around the time that they also launched the two row, um, the the other uh, big thing that they were talking about with this thing is the new audio system. The uh, you know everybody's putting in premium branded premium audio systems in vehicles now to help distinguish them. Uh, and GM or Jeep rather has partnered up with Macintosh, um, which you know they've only had a couple of dips into the car audio market in the past, um, never in any significant volume. They did uh, an audio system for the, the 2004 Centennial Edition Ford GT. Um, they did uh, on some Subaru, on a, on a Subaru Outback. Uh, and they're in the Grand Wagoneer. And yes, it, it first showed up in the Grand Wagoneer concept that we saw last fall. And now it's, it's, going, to, it's going into production, uh, starting with the Grand Cherokee. And this Grand Cherokee, uh, the Grand Cherokee L, um, uh, starts production, uh, I think later this quarter, and it'll be available in, for sale in the second quarter of this year. So, uh, I thought it was interesting that they're still calling this a 2021 model, 
Uh, even though it's not launching until the spring of this year. Um, but with the Macintosh audio system, one of the, the cool little details that they had um, on the concept was on the center touchscreen. Uh, when you go to the, the audio screen, it shows a virtual version of the classic Macintosh uh, meters, you know, the blue backlit meters that you have on all the Macintosh home audio devices that shows up on the screen. Um, and that's going to be in the Grand Cherokee and presumably in the Wagoneer as well. Uh, and then on the speaker grills on the doors, the Macintosh logo is also backlit in that same Ooh, shade of blue. Fancy. So just, you know, little detail touches. Yeah, that, that's something that Jeep is really good at with the Grand Cherokee especially is those those touches. And they, they cover that large spread of, of pricing too. So it's going to be like Laredo Limited, uh, uh, what Overland and Summit or something like that trim level wise. So. Um, you'll be able to get one for a reasonable price and then you can get a very expensive, fully loaded one as well. <laughs> yeah. um, it's, it's a great product and it's, it's really well respected because uh, it's, it drives really well and it, it's, it's earned its premium reputation uh, by really pleasing customers. So hopefully this new one still pleases customers. I, I feel like the one bit of, controversy might be that the way they've evolved the styling to pull in some of that uh wagoneer that not everybody loves um but it's it's a little bit more subdued here uh, you know the proportions are a little different so we'll yeah see. the roof line's a lot more square to make room for that third row the people that are sitting in that third row yeah so but it's not it's still not as tall as the uh the wagoneer yeah so the, and not nearly as expensive either right you know whereas this one is uh you know, it's definitely a little sleeker looking. And then, yeah. you know, the, the, the fascia, you know, the grill on the front uh, is, you know, rather than the, the slope back look that the Grand Cherokee has always had since it debuted 30 years ago, um, you know, is, again, you know, that same upright look that's on the Wagoneer. Yeah, they're going. So it'll the be underway. interesting, Sam, just looking at the pictures, because it looks like the gear shifter has that same feel as the Genesis vehicles do. And so that will be interesting to see how that, because I knew you had issues with that, uh, what that feels like when it comes out and what yeah. your thoughts are. Well, uh, on the Genesis, it was more um, on the, the infotainment controller because of the way it's flush. Okay. Um, you know, and, and the way you interact with it, you know, you've got this flush con control rotary dial that's you know, yes. flush in the, in the console. Right. And so you have to press down on it to get that get that grip to turn it. Whereas with the shift lever, the, you know, the, the rotary shifter that's on here, you know, I saw it on the, the Wagoneer um, mm -hmm. last fall, uh, you know, you're gripping, you're gripping it differently, you know, because okay. it's sticking up from the console. And so I don't think it's going to be as much of a problem there, although we'll, we'll see. Yeah. Uh, ergonomically, it looks like they've done a lot of homework. It looks, um, yeah, I, I, I want to drive it now. <laughs> I, was, yeah. I was reading the, the, the press release. Sure. I was like, I really want to try this out because it's, you know, the, the ergonomics in the current Grand Cherokee are pretty good. And this is uh, pretty similar in a lot of ways. The controls look like they're in most of the same places and they're easy to use. Uh, or or it, it, the current one is easy to use. So hopefully they've kept that ease of use. And, and Well, and it looks, I mean, the, I think it's really handsome and it's it looks familiar, but still an iteration. Yeah. Yeah. So good, good job for now. Yes. It's lovely. <laughs> and it also comes with the fam cam that's also on oh, the, uh, oh, on fun. the minivan. So on the Pacific, you yeah. can, 
You can monitor your kids in the back two rows. Oh, that's brilliant. And it doesn't have the intercom system too, where you can yell at them through the. the uh, it does, yes. <laughs> nice. I'm getting one. Last thing on our list here is the, the uh, large Mercedes hyperscreen, um, which premiered and then uh, took down the Mercedes website. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, if you actually it. tried to watch the video after they launched, uh, you know, it, it kept crashing. Um, so what's the scoop with it? It's an enormous screen that goes across the whole, like from sort of. Right. Yeah. Uh, so this is this is the the display system that's going to be in the new EQS, which is their new um, electric uh, luxury sedan that's coming out later this year. Uh, so it's basically an electric version of the the S class. Um, they call it the hyper screen. It's it's actually a single continuous surface that spans the entire dashboard, but it's not one screen. There's actually three separate screens. Oh, so some of the Mercedes in recent years, you know, have had this big uh, unit, you know, that sits on top of the dash, you know, with the MBUX uh, infotainment. But it was actually two separate screens under the glass. So it, when it's off, it looks like it, it. Well, it is a single piece of glass, but there's underneath the glass are, are individual screens. In this case, there's three large screens uh, that that span. So there's one in front of the driver for the the instrument display um combined they all add up to something like 56 inches across um <laughs> but uh uh there you know there's there's individual screens here i can't remember the size of the central screen is the big one yeah it's like um, 18 inches it's, well, yeah it's, not quite it's, it's huge Crazy. and then the third screen is over on the passenger side uh, and supposedly, it, you know, from the description, it sounds like uh, it won't really be visible to the driver. So the passenger can watch videos and things like that on there. Uh, and we've seen this on some other vehicles recently. Yeah, the Taycan, the Porsche Taycan has a really long. Yeah, the Taycan's got a screen there. Screen. The, the Wagoneer concept had yeah, a separate right. screen uh, for the for the passenger. Um, What's wrong with the, the windows? What's wrong with looking out the windows? Look out the windows. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you know. That, I, that's certainly a legit complaint, you know, when it comes to the, um, you know, if they're watching videos on there, uh, the ability for, you know, the passenger to be able to, you know, for example, interact with things like the um, uh, entertainment, you know, pulling yeah, up different music or true. the navigation, enter navigation information, things like that on their screen, I think is, is actually useful. Um, one of the, uh, you know, that the central screen one of the things that they talk about uh, in this thing, in the design of this, is this zero layer concept. You know, and one of the things we've complained about a lot, I know I've complained about a lot with touchscreens, you know, is drilling down through layers of menus. And, you know, when, when you actually have to look at the screen, you know, that does take your attention away from the road. Mm -hmm. um, so with, with this zero layer concept, you know, by going to this larger screen, they're able to surface more of the stuff that you use most frequently at that top layer. So you're not drilling down through, through menus and the same, the same principle is there uh, on the Ford, the Mustang Mach-E uh, they're trying to do the same idea by having all the stuff that you use available all the time. So it's, it's not, you're not drilling down through menus. And I think that if you're going to, rely on touchscreens, which it seems like despite my protestations, the industry is going to do. Yeah, I don't think they're going to um, listen to us. So. You know, <laughs> um, you know, this, 
doing something like this, I think, is is a better approach. You know, so, you know, what you see on some of the um, some of the images, you know, you see the, the navigation taking up, you know, like 80 percent of this display area. And then, you know, the bottom part, you've got things like the climate control, um, the and then, you know, boxes that overlay on top of the map. You know, for things like your media controls, your phone uh, messages, uh, that sort of thing. So everything is right there. So you don't have to drill down, which I think is the the best of you know making the best of the situation if you're going to go touch only. Yeah. And th- well, so this is something that's going to uh, be at CES, the virtual CES, too. Right. Like this is the, we're going to know more about this soon. Um, or- I don't think think so okay. i can't remember if mercedes is doing anything at virtual ces this week um but we will be seeing more of this you know in the coming months as they get closer to the launch of the eqs um you know prior prior to the launch of the s class last fall you know they were putting out stuff you know on a every couple of weeks they were putting out new information about it and so i'm, I'm sure we'll be seeing more about this and other elements of the eqs over the the next several months we're going to get to a super long episode because we did an interview with um, Ryan Matulich from Ford about the new 7.3 liter V8 uh, engine in the Super Duty trucks. It, uh, our patrons already have the interview. Uh, they got it early. So if you want stuff like that early, hit, hit uh, patreon.com uh, slash wheelbearingsmedia and you too can get get things uh, <laughs> early before we put them in the show. Um, but I, I, it was a really interesting discussion that the three of us had with Ryan about uh, why they decided to go the way they went with that engine that I, I've been talking about for the last three weeks. Um, so uh, we figured that it might be interesting to hear some of the the reasoning behind going with a new large displacement pushrod V8. So I'll put that in here and then uh, we can come back and we can answer a couple of questions and uh hit the road. Ryan, thanks for joining us on Wheelbrings. Let's start with the the easy stuff. Can you introduce yourself to our audience, uh, who you are, what you do? Absolutely. So my name is Brian Matulich. I work at Ford Motor Company in global engine engineering, uh, in particular with the 7.3 liter engine systems team. So uh, I work as part of a team that oversees the uh, development, release, and then uh, integration of the engine within the vehicles that Ford Motor Company sells. All right. Uh, any other Ford uh, powertrain prod- projects? Obviously, you know, secret stuff we can't talk about, but, um, you know, before the 7.3, you were you were on other powertrain projects as well at Ford? I was. Uh, my uh, my tenure with Ford relatively short, about five and a half years or so. Uh, when I came in, I worked on some of the modular programs as they were kind of going out the door. So a 5.4 liter, 6.8 liter 3V, uh, that you see in kind of the heavy truck market. And then uh, I did a small stint with the five liter Coyote also. Well, that that's a good one. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I like that one. <laughs> yeah. It was a lot more fun than six eights. That's yeah. our, 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 sec, our second favorite uh, Ford V8 after the uh, Voodoo. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, it's hard to beat the Voodoo. Um, yeah. So uh, we've asked you to come on the show because new engines always generate some enthusiast interest and excitement and big V8s, especially uh, get people paying attention. And so the new 7.3 that we're, we're talking about, uh, it, it's code name is Godzilla, of course. Um, and so that's the top engine in the Super Duty trucks, uh, replaces that 6.8 modular 
uh, V10. And I just had a chance to, to spend a, a couple of weeks actually with the, that engine in an F350. And there's, there's quite a contrast to the two architectures from the modular to the new Godzilla. Can you sort of talk about the differences between the engines, what influenced the, the choices made? Yeah, absolutely. So um, as the modular was getting a little long in the tooth, right, we were looking to, to really realign what Ford was offering. Uh, so that it could be better suited to what the customers needed. In particular, with this heavy-duty truck market, um, medium-duty trucks, so your F650, F750s, right, or uh, our strip chassis products that we offer, and super-duty truck, right? Uh, a lot of change since we introduced the modular engine into those vehicles. And so we were taking a good look at what the customer wanted, what they needed from power, durability, uh, maintenance, cost-wise. And when we started looking at all that, it really became evident that the uh, customers didn't didn't need an overhead cam design, right? Um, they needed something that had a, maybe a, a little less weight to it, right? So push rods are lower weight because there's fewer pieces. It's a little simpler. Um, so with that, we, we decided to go back to push rod, right? And then uh, the size kind of came about displacement. As you start looking about really where the sweet spot was for running a uh, running the power we wanted and the torque we wanted and how we wanted to run that engine. Uh, it just kind of worked out to be 7.3 liters then. So. All right. Hey, Ryan. Hi, it's Rebecca Lindland. I'm sorry. Hi, I was late. How are you? Oh, good. Good. So when you say that it just sort of became 7.3, like how does that happen? And I'm sorry, that's a, maybe a really remedial question. No, no, no. Um, <laughs> so as you look at it, like heavy-duty truck market, uh, the way you want to run is uh, stoichiometric, right? So you want to run uh, the perfect air-to-fuel ratio, just enough fuel, okay. just enough air. So um, when you start looking at that, that your displacement controls how much air you can get in the engine. And mm -hmm. then to run at the correct air-to-fuel ratio, that controls how much fuel, which will then give you uh, your power. So we knew what kind of power targets we wanted. We knew what the customers were expecting for towing capability and torque and where we wanted to see that. So as you come up with that and you start working out how much uh, power and torque you need, that gives you your fuel. And then we were able to back calculate with the air and the volume. And then we became 7.3 liter. Okay. Hey. Uh, thank you. That, that hey. actually helps a lot. <laughs> yeah, no problem. So you, ba you basically reverse engineer uh, back from what it is the customer needs yeah, to, to get the product that achieves that. Correct. And, and so stoichiometric, that's the perfect 14.1, uh, 14.0 to one air fuel ratio, right? In theory. That's correct. Yeah. Uh, uh, theory is a beautiful thing. Um, but that's actually, I was surprised looking at the specs, you know, this is like a, a the bores are more than four inches uh, in diameter, which is a pretty big bore. And so that gives you a large, large area. And, and it was that a challenge to make it, it, it burn clean um, because of the size of the bore? I know that different combustion chamber shapes sort of affect those those particulate emissions and, and how clean it burns, how complete. Yeah, we have a lot of uh, in-house CAE analytical uh, tools that we use to help develop what we want to see for charge motion, right? Uh, air and fuel movement as it comes into the cylinder as you fill it, um, which then directly correlates to how, how well you get a clean burn, right? Burn rates, flame propagation, Right. Um, that was a it was a big concern for us. And there was a fair amount of time spent developing the engine, uh, working on getting, you know, 
our, the right amount of charge motion and the way we position the spark plug, right? Mm -hmm. um, you'll notice it's in between our exhaust runners and the outside where we put it. That, that was all done for a very precise reason to try to give us that best burn in the, uh, in the displacement and the sizes that we had. Okay. So Ryan, uh, this, this engine, uh, not only replaces the six, eight, but it also replaces the six, two, at least in the super duties. Um, and you know, the six, two was also, uh, I'm trying to remember now, was that, that was an overhead cam engine, wasn't it? Or it was, was an it? overhead cam engine. That's okay. correct. So is there anything at all uh, in terms of architecture, obviously not the, the cam position, but anything else about the architecture that, that was shared with the six, two or, or derived from the six, two. So 6.2 actually is still offered in Super Duty. Oh, it's it? our entry-level gas engine. Yes, sir. Oh. Um, so uh, the 7.3 was really meant to fill a gap that was between your 6.2, which is your entry-level six, uh, like Super Duty truck, gas truck. You use it for, see a lot of fleets and stuff. People who need the big bed, a decent amount of towing capacity and everything, um, you know, but don't need the ton of towing capacity. And 7.3 really fits in really well between the 6.2. It's a nice step up without paying the premium to get the diesel. Because the diesel, you know, for the 2020 is a thousand foot pounds of torque. It's a, <laughs> a monstrous amount of towing capacity. Like it is a great vehicle, but it is a ton of truck, right? And not everyone needs that. And so 7.3 really fits perfectly in between there. Um, when it comes to sharing architecture, there was a, uh, we try to design everything to be very, very common. Use parts where we can, right? It's the most efficient way to design something, a most efficient way to build something from our perspective, right? Um, there are only a handful of parts though that were really common uh, because being a, you know, cam and block on your 7.3 compared to the overhead cam, um, being a, a different valve architecture on the top end, right? So they're both two valves, right? But the 7.3's got those big rocker arms in it, 6.2 doesn't, it has a rocker shaft. It's a very different, where they put the hydraulic lash and everything. The Even the, the shapes of the covers on the engine are all very different. So while we did want it to be very similar, um, at the end of the day, there aren't very many parts that were shared between the two engines. Maybe the alternator. <laughs> <laughs> uh, alternators are common. Yeah, um, that's not engine release. So, yeah, that's um, I understand. The uh, the crank position sensor is common. Uh, <laughs> main, I think uh, the, the main caps. Other than that, you're you're kind of running low. So Ryan, from that perspective, then did you have any issues fitting this engine into the vehicle? Oh, uh, absolutely not. Actually, that, that's what's that's gorgeous about the pushrod architecture is that this engine is is actually smaller. Than the outgoing 6.8. It's smaller oh, than the 6.2. Cool. And if you think about what this vehicle is used in, um, every one of these vehicle applications, aside from the, uh, the VN127, the Econoline, uh, gets a diesel, a 6.7 liter power stroke in it, right? And the 6.7 liter power stroke is a very large powertrain, right? The diesel mm -hmm. engine takes up a fair amount of space. So um, it, it was almost startling the first time I got one of the vehicles and you pop the hood, you could look into it. You could actually like see some air and daylight <laughs> when you look down, which is, it's been a long time since I looked in a vehicle and could see the ground when you're, when you're looking at the engine, you know? Cool. So it, uh, obviously there's always package constraints for, like hood lines and, you know, getting everything like we, we do have to consider all that stuff, but, uh, compared to the other powertrains that are offered in these applications, seven threes are pretty compact. Um, package actually. So, yeah, and and yeah, anybody that's familiar with the uh, 
the small block uh, V8s from your your rivals across town, you know, is one of the big advantages of that uh, cam and block design is that it can be such a small package envelope, you know, for an engine that produces so much power, uh, you know, which is why they've been so popular um, as as retrofits in so many applications over the decades. Um, so how like how much smaller than a six two? Uh, would you say this uh, the seven three is from, you know from a package volume perspective? Um, you know, at one point I did have the numbers for like overall length and height and width, right? That could compare. I don't have those off the top of my head right now. Um, I can get that information to you. Right? It, it's I just have to dig it out of my email somewhere. Well, let, um, let, let me put it this way then: it, it, is it conceive? You know, could you? relatively easily slot this engine into the space currently occupied by a coyote v8 i I know where you're going with this (laughs) (laughs) um you know i i've not compared it to five liter either i've seen them both on engine stands i will say the 7.3 does look pretty uh petite compared to a coyote right with the dual overhead cams and everything um as to how it would fit into one of those packages i i don't really know too much on it I've I've seen the YouTube videos of one fit into a uh, fox body, right? Well, so, on YouTube, yeah. everything is possible. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so I, I guess uh, coming back to the the truck applications, you know, the other well-respected uh, Ford powertrain recently has been the the EcoBoost V6s, uh, you know, the Nano and then the 3.5. So I'm curious why. Uh, there was, well, I guess I'm sure there probably was consideration about maybe doing a heavier duty version of the EcoBoost V6 to fill this need versus uh, a new V8. Was that uh, thought given and why was the decision made to go with a, a new V8 instead? Yeah, um, the EcoBoost is it's a great motor and it's done very well in the uh, the F-Series, the lighter F-150 trucks, and the rest of our lineup, right? When you start looking at heavy-duty trucks, though, that's not really not really filling the need there, right? So you you hear a lot of talk about, you know, um, in, in clutch engagement torque, right? So when you're coming off the line, you've been stopped and everything, right? So uh, a, large, a large V8 fills that need very well, right? If you have a big tow or a, t- a big trailer attached to your truck and you're stopped a stoplight you go to take off you're able to you know get your torque at a very good onset it's um it's a very easy package very precise package right you know and it doesn't require a lot of additional uh, vehicle cooling or a lot of additional controls on the vehicle um that are all things that you'd have to worry about on you know you think about some of these commercial vehicles they'll run 200 300 miles in a lifetime very easily right and so like this this package gave us the the torque and power where we wanted it when we needed it uh, for the package and in the simplest solution right which is really the best solution for the customer yeah i it's i love the fact that there's a new pushrod v8 in town that <laughs> makes me makes me pleased you know the the triton the v10 it was known for a, a few things you know one of them being the the 450 or more uh foot pounds of torque and the other was the the thirst that was hard to slake. Um, yeah. You know, it could kind of return to that big, hardworking engine fuel economy, which is like not great. Uh, how do you try to get the most efficiency out of big engines without hurting their potential for work? 
So it's always hard because the more power you make, right, the more fuel you're going to take or whatever. But, but the key is to run really, really efficient. And this engine, we introduced a couple technologies that really help with that, right? So uh, the, the Triton motor that you're talking about, that did not have variable valve timing on it. Um, they also didn't have a variable displacement oil pump, which are both two technologies that we've used on other applications that have been introduced in 2020 on the 7.3 liter. So um, the standard G-rotor oil pump, every time the engine spins, you're spinning so much oil volume, right? And as you spin the engine faster and harder, you're still spinning the exact same oil. But as you get up to speed, you don't necessarily need all that oil pressure. And so what we've done with the Godzilla, we have a variable displacement oil pump. So we provide all of the lubrication you need, the low speed, by having this massive amount of oil that you can pump every time you crank the, the engine turns around once. But as you go up in speed and you're cranking it more often, you don't need all of that displacement on the oil pump. And so we start trimming that back a bit. And that really gives us an increased amount of fuel economy because it's less parasitic loss on the engine, right? And then the VCT, being able to time the valve train to give you some optimal breathing, right? That really increases what we can do. It increases the efficiency we can get from the engine, which therefore results in, you know, not only better power numbers, but better fuel economy numbers to go with it. Sam, Rebecca, what's what's yeah. on your list? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm wondering how the customer response has been, and this may be out of your uh, line of sight, Ryan. But you know, you're are you? Do you feel like it's the feel of it is very different from a customer experience standpoint? If so, how is it different? What's good about what may you know be some obstacle they have to get used to? I uh, you know, just so that kind of the, from the overall feel, I, I was just driving uh, an, a, a very different vehicle, but I found the exhaust note to be really disappointing on this particular vehicle. <laughs> uh, you know, things like that. Like, it's just, you know, it's just a different engine. I felt like I was driving a motorboat um, and I know it's not supposed to sound like that. <laughs> so I'm just sort of wondering, you know, from a customer experience when you were driving it, both customer and engineering experience, I guess. Yeah. So, uh, I've been able to drive, you know, a, a whole array of our Super Duty products in, in the current role I have. I have to say that the 73, um, even though I'm a little biased because I worked on it, is by far my favorite one to drive. Right? I, I think it's a blast to drive. It's a hoot. Right? It reminds me of when Don't I tell your I, other engines that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it reminds me of like when I learned to drive. I, my dad had a F-150, right? And it was it, it takes you back to that, right? You know, <laughs> and um, it was a lot of fun. I have to say that having driven some 6.2 trucks and everything, then mm. when you drive those, it's a truck. It, it gets you around. It drives very well, but it, it didn't really put a smile on your face, right? Mm. And the 7.3, when you drive that thing, like it, it puts a smile on your face, right? It's, <laughs> it's got a nice note. It starts up well. It, it's got some get up and go when you put your foot into it, right? You know, yeah. and, uh, it, it's just a lot of fun to drive in general. Um, the, the diesel is just kind of crazy to drive. Like I said before, that's, that's a hell of a truck. That's a lot a lot of a truck you know mm -hmm. and uh i find the 7.3 just to be like the perfect mix it's a lot of fun it's uh it's comfortable to drive around on the road right it doesn't bounce you out too much it can get up and pass anything you need to do um as from a customer's perspective i mean i i believe they're selling well but i don't i'm in engineering i don't get to see any of the sales <laughs> or marketing numbers really so yeah, but you still have that experience as you say like that because what we're finding in a number of vehicles is you it's hard to keep that emotional connection yeah. while you're, 
you know, while you're, you're tuning them for things like improved fuel economy and putting in things like VVT and, 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 you know, some of these different applications, even stop, start, you know, my, I was talking to my brother uh, who always reminds me, he's not only much older than me, but, you know, when he was a kid, kind of, he's in that stage of life. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so, you know, I, I had a vehicle recently that had stop, start, he's here visiting from California. And I, you know, I told him, I said, you know, this has stop start and he didn't even realize it. And that's the kind of improvements that I've tried to tell him, you know, over time has happened and, yeah. you know, convincing, especially a traditional pickup truck buyer that some of this technology is actually going to improve their experience can be challenging sometimes. Yeah. And, um, I mean, we don't have stop start on the seven three. Um, okay. It is, it's, it's fully conventional with the, but it does have the 10 speed transmission and the super duty mm. applications. Um, I've found that to be a very nice package when I'm driving them around, right? Like they, they seem to be very responsive. They handle well, they shift well. I, I seem to be pretty smooth and everything. Um, for the truck drivers out there who previously had a Triton or a 6.2, I think they would find it much easier to drive a Godzilla truck, right? I, I think it's a little more lively, a little more responsive off the throttle, right? Um, the 2020 Super Duty has got a lot of bells and whistles on the inside are just just phenomenal overall creature comforts, right? It's come a long way since the mid nineties when I learned to drive on a truck. I can um, confirm I can confirm all of these these impressions. Um it, it like you say, the the modular V8s, they're they're good engines. They seem to make their power a little higher up in the the RPM range to really get peak power out of them. So the the low end response from the 73 is is really pleasing. I also found myself thinking you know this this does not feel like a truck engine it's very responsive it, and you look at the details the stuff that works for durability also works for, for high performance you know, the four bolt main caps with cross bolted uh you know uh with cross bolts as well there's a lot of rigidity and stability to the engine yep. so it, it kind of it gets the hot rodder in me very excited for, for its <laughs> performance potential so, so ryan why why doesn't it have stop start um, that's just not a technology that the F series team really asked us to consider for the for the oh, twenty twenty package. Okay. Um, is it uh, um, is it also partly because when you get up to a certain size, fuel economy ratings aren't necessary? <laughs> I mean, that could be. Uh, I we're as engine, we're given a set of kind of goals and parameters that they want us to work with. That was not one of the ones that the program wanted us to consider. So that wasn't obviously yeah. there's a lot of com, uh, complexity and cost to be added in. So it wasn't anything that we were trying to uh, look to add in on our own. So yeah, interesting. Okay, you know uh, across the across Ford's light duty lineup, uh, the company has committed to putting electrification across pretty much every vehicle, and and many of them now have varying degrees of electrification from hybrid to plug-in hybrid and and you know battery electric coming. It, do you see a a place for some electrification being added on the super duties and, and with the, um, with the seven, three, uh, maybe even a, a 48 volt mild hybrid. I mean, Ford does have 48 volt systems on some models, uh, in Europe, uh, like on, on the, on the, some of the smaller cars in Europe, uh, do you see a place for 48 volt, uh, as an add on to, uh, to this engine? Well, I mean, Hybrid always has its place as the, you know, as the world striving to better and better fuel economy, better and better efficiency and everything. And I, I think that's something that Ford's probably going to consider uh, heavily as we go forward. 
on what kind of um, hybridization, electrification, additional uh, power features we can provide our customers in this segment also. And so I, I could see them looking into that, but I, I can't really comment on anything that they're going to be doing in the future. A little above my pay grade. <laughs> You'll get there eventually. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, what's your what's your favorite part of of powertrain development? What do you find the most satisfying about imagining, you know, rocker arms and you know, connecting rods and how it all fits together and and uh, co- comes out to the world? You know, it's a. Uh... It's crazy to think about because we, we spend all this time and we, and we work on just crazy tight time schedules, right? And so, like, it's a whirlwind. Like, I, I came in and you're, you're getting parts and you're, you're building engines and you're testing engines and you're rebuilding engines and you're getting new parts and you're making the changes constantly, constantly, constantly. And then all of a sudden you sit back and you look one day and, and it's out in the field. And I, I have to say it was just a, a – it put a big smile on my face the first day I was driving home from work and I, I passed the dealership and I could see there was a – there was a big super duty. It was a trimmer, of course, so it's super shiny and catches your eye. And I, I could tell it wasn't a diesel. I was like, oh, that it put a huge smile on my face because it's, it's so exciting because when you see other people and they stop and they want to see those things, they want to get in them, you know, like it, it gives you a great sense of pride, you know. And um, uh, personally, I think the most fun I the fun I had during the development work uh, wasn't with the, the, the engine components themselves, which uh, which I really was anticipating, you know, when I started my journey as an engine engineer, that that was going to be the fun part. It was doing the, uh, the splash testing. So they, they create this big trench of water and you drive through it and it splashes everywhere. I mean, it's like everything you've ever seen in every movie. It was a, that was, you were a five-year-old. Yeah, exactly. It's like jumping in puddles again. It was, it was surprisingly fun for an entire day of driving, you know, under 40 miles an hour. I don't think there's anything surprising about that. That sounds awesome. As, as, as a former engineer myself, that you know, that is one of the things that people outside of the industry don't, you know, have, have never experienced. You know, how much, at, especially for vehicles like these trucks, how much, uh, how many, and how many different kinds of durability tests have to be conducted. And this, this is why it takes so long, I think, for for these things to come to market. Oh yeah, it the the array of testing we do so. Um, I sit kind of in the unique position because I get to see both the engine stuff and then I work on vehicle integration also. So I get to see the vehicle side. I mean, we have, you know, we'll, we'll run dozens and dozens of engines in the dyno to do all of our internal development for all the engine components themselves, right? And our fuel economy and our performance targets to make sure everything's working the way we want. And then, I mean, we'll build hundreds of test vehicles then, you know, to for every milestone where you put all the engines in, you test them, they go through all sorts of things, whether it's calibration and safety and then your durability testing and handling testing and i mean it it's just fascinating to see how many there are all the time and and what's going on with them and then um we do a great job of making sure whenever all the testing is done uh i mean we we pulled in every engine that was built during the development and tore it down the entire team reviewed every one of those and we looked at all the pictures we looked at every part to make sure that there was never anything that was going to be uh, you know, surprise us, you know, it was, it was a big deal because this was a big engine for us. It was a, it was a big project for us. And so there was a, a lot of work that went into it and it was a, it was a blast. Well, good. Well, what's next for you? For me? Oh, I'm, I'm still working on the Godzilla systems team. Um, we're actually in the middle of launching our 2022 medium duty trucks right now. So I'll be going to the plant on Monday to help with that. Excellent. 
And then working on installing it in the S650? (laughs) (laughs) They don't let me near S650, unfortunately. No, I I mean, S as in Sam, 650. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Well, I'm all out of questions. Uh, Sam or Rebecca, do either of you have anything else you wanted to follow up on with Ryan? Uh, Nothing from me. This has been a great conversation, Ryan. I appreciate you taking the time with us. And just call us when the splash pad thing is open again. I want to do that. (laughs) (laughs) I I actually think we should sell tickets to it. I think people would pay just to be able to ride around and splash through things, you know? I think you could could get like uh, hats and jackets and and key fobs and make it the, the Ford splash pad experience. Yeah, it's like Magic Mountain at Disney, yeah. right? You know, but in, <laughs> exactly. but in trucks. Well, in trucks, too, you Love can put it. seats in the bed too, so you can. Oh yeah, there you go. We have just oh. new revenue stream. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know when I got a when I was. Uh, helping with the splash testing it was like february so i don't think many people would want to sit in the back of it while you're splashing water on here in michigan that's a yeah that's true chilly day i I do have one more question for you ryan yes sir If, if ford said to you okay go ahead design whatever you want you know any kind of powertrain you want what would it be Ooh. so i've always been a huge fan of a like really well designed large uh inline eight. So you see them in a lot of those Ooh, pre-war those pre-war cars. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and you see them and it's just wow. gorgeous because it's like a mile long, right? You know, <laughs> and it it's just so pretty. Like the way everything lines up and it gives you a beautiful long hood line and everything. Like I I'm sure that I could accomplish everything I needed to out of a powertrain that was much more compact and efficient, but like a big straight eight just looks gorgeous in my opinion. I'm not going to argue with that. I'm just <laughs> imagining the crankshaft that weighs about 45,000 pounds. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Plenty of balance weight then. That's true. Yeah. No, that's a good one. It's been a while since I've seen a straight eight. So. Yeah. Really. I, I mean, I don't know off the top of my head, but you'd probably have to go back into the fifties to probably find the last time one was made. Yeah, I had to yeah, guess. I think like, so. Buick or Pontiac or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, no, that would it would just be nice to see one of those in a car because you get this big, comfy sedan and have a nice, beautiful hood line, right? Yeah, it would make that nice eight-cylinder sound. I would not argue. Check in with Ben Wadila and see if he ever got his Packard running again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, all right. Well, so thanks very much for joining us on. Uh, wheelbearings to, to talk about the new seven three and, and certainly have a standing invitation to come back and, and talk engines anytime or, or vehicle integration, whatever it is you want to talk about, just, you know, feel free. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, thank you guys very much for your time. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Sam. Thank you, Rebecca. And I hope you guys have a great afternoon. Awesome, Ryan. Thank you so Thanks, much. Ryan. Cheers. Bye. Last week we didn't get to it, but we had a question from um, Mark Wald uh, and Sam, he sent in another question as well that you're you're going to get him a real answer on. Yeah. So um, Mark uh, sent in a question uh, just yesterday about um, how the uh, uh, the grid is going to hold up with you know all these EVs coming to market, and um, the company I work for, you know, we're our parent company is a consulting firm and, you know, big part of the business. We do a lot of work with utilities and there's a, a lot of my colleagues who have a lot more expertise in the area of utilities um, than I do. 
And so I'm going to get uh, one of them to answer that question. We'll have that uh, hopefully in the next episode. But uh, for this one, uh, let me read. This is a fairly long email from Mark. Uh, it says, I'm a longtime listener back when Sam and Dan started on the podcast and was a fan from the first episode. The way the information is relayed and broken down uh, is why I keep coming back. I have to admit that I use some of your logic in everyday conversations I'm with sorry. people and use the arguments that you bring up in your podcast as ammunition for those conversations. Dan, we are sincerely sorry for that. (laughs) (laughs) Really, we are sorry. Um, But most people listen to music on road trips and I drive a lot, but I always listen to your podcast. And when I've listened to the latest one, uh, I listen to others to to really understand what you're talking about. And I agree with an email from the last podcast of 2020 that Dan is really soothing to listen to. I I love it. I I think most people will disagree, but okay. (laughs) Um, I also rant and go off on tangents all the time. So it makes me smile. Well, I'm glad we can make you smile. Um, I am one of the remaining few and I promise to hold on, uh, of the generation of Avant and wagon lovers. I currently have a wagon, a Volkswagen B 5.5 Passat wagon for motion. Um, we, we used to have one of those in our household as well. Uh, and over the years I've had, uh, the all road a four Avant and even at one point a Jetta wagon TDI along with many GLIs and GTIs. We also had a, wag- a TDI wagon, which uh, we sold back to Volkswagen for uh, a very good price. Um, I know this email has been all over the place, but I've been listening for so long that I felt I had to contribute to the conversation some way. And here it is. And hey, Mark, you know, it's just like the show. So no, don't worry about that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, how do you think cons- automakers will go about marketing new tech? In regards to electric vehicles, remember when Dodge came out with the brand Hemi and had and everyone had to have it, even though most, if not all engines have a hemispherical cylinder now nowadays, Dodge has managed to hold on to that nameplate and is still using a is still a huge selling point to a lot of people. How will manufacturers come up with a staple and who do you think has done the best job at make bringing those nameplates to market? Uh, who do you think has some work to do in terms of capturing the love? Uh, thanks for uh, continuing to make an awesome podcast. I will write in more often. Rebecca, let's, why don't you tackle that one first? Who's who's how how are manufacturers going to handle marketing of of this stuff? It'll be really interesting as we move towards EVs, where an engine is not the selling point. So, you know that it'll it'll require some really creative marketing to package uh, range and charging time and and things you know there's there's a sexiness and a familiarity things like horsepower and uh you know and, and cylinders and 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 vocabulary that we have grown up with that represents power and utility and capability range charging time uh, what am i missing you know like we have a new new vocabulary that we have to package and that we have to make sexy and that's the biggest challenge that i think we're facing today you know even subaru has i you know they've done a good job obviously with their you know love and puppies and things like that um but we we have to understand what 
what the market will look like. And, you know, there's a company called Strategic Vision out of San Diego that does a lot of new car buyer survey. And their philosophy is that you have to start with love. Like people have to love their vehicles. And so how we define the attributes of love as it relates to vehicles is changing and mobility is changing because the propulsion systems are changing. So that I think is going to be the biggest challenge that we have. Obviously, Tesla, for all its controversies, has managed to wrap that up. You know, everybody knows what when you say Tesla, everybody knows what that means. And so that's going to be the biggest challenge that I think that we face. You know, you mentioned ESQ and you had to say that's Mercedes electric vehicle line. You know, I think that will it'll be interesting to see as we start to see the vehicles come out from companies like Rivian uh, this year, um, Fisker next year, you know, some of these legacy brands, Lucid Air, how they package themselves, how they package their products to make them that one word that everybody wants, uh, you know, Nike, everybody knows what Nike is and what they stand for, just like everyone knows what Tesla stands for. Yeah, I, um, you know, it's overall with car marketing, I think that's part of the issue is that people have shifted from that long-term shorthand of engines and performance and you know, handling as ways to determine what's good and what's not um, to now it's more about how it fits into your life and the, the, the joy in a sense, I guess that sort of talks about the, the idea of love as well. Uh, the, the joy that it enables um, mm -hmm. is, is the challenge is you have to explain what this car, regardless of how it goes down the road is going to do for you. You know, how does it facilitate your life? Uh, and that's even now with current, you know, internal combustion cars, that's, that's the challenge. And you're seeing it where a lot of the marketing and advertising just doesn't know how to talk to people. Well, they, right. They, and I've said this before, where we as, as an industry have not done a good job of explaining to a consumer why an EV is better, a right. better solution for their mobility needs than an internal combustion engine. Well, and it's right now, uh, there's a part of an EV experience that's a hassle, you know, trying to right. charge is, and, and like you said, I think Tesla, honestly, for all the grief we give them, they've done a really masterful job of naming their things so that it becomes shorthand. Uh, so their, their features. Superchargers. Right. And uh, they addressed, chargers. right. They addressed the, the, what arguably was one of the biggest barriers was the charging yes. aspect yeah. of the, it. The, the customer experience has been great. And that's, it goes, goes hand in hand. You know, the, the customer experience has to be there. And then just the, the ability to name the product in a way that pretty instantly tells you what it is and what it does. They've been very good at that. Um, I, I, you know, and, and I, also the other thing that they've done, and I think all companies that are making EVs now have done this to a certain degree is they focus on the acceleration and instant torque uh, you know, the, the, the quickness of those vehicles, because that's, I think, easily accessible to everybody to understand acceleration, no matter how it's achieved, is an impressive thing. You know, we, we have metrics for that, the zero to 60 time, the quarter mile time. So it's, it's an easy way to try to explain what this 
card does in the sort of context of what every other card does. I don't think it's a great way to explain it. Um, I don't think it's really useful. It's not even useful for regular cars, to be honest. Um, you know, a better way to explain the benefit of EVs is certainly that they're they're kind of fuel agnostic. They don't really care what makes the electrons. So that decouples you from the the uh, global warming concerns to a degree. Obviously, there's that argument of, well, you know, you can make the EV dirty as hell by, you know, charging it up with coal power. Sure. But uh, renewables are growing at a fast rate. And so as a, a brander or a marketer, you you try to accentuate the positive and uh, minimize those those negative aspects or be ready to counterpoint them. So that's, I think, what every automaker needs to do. And I've seen, you know, honestly, Ford has done a really good job with the Mach-E that upset everybody, mm. that they took their long-established Mustang brand and tacked on a new name to it. But you say Mach-E, you know exactly what people are talking about. It's an electric Ford. So right. that, that was pretty good. It's not bad. And, and most, you know, mo- many of the automakers, you know, are creating unique badging or unique branding for their electric vehicles. Yeah, Volkswagen's got torture. ID, <laughs> Audi's got e-tron, Mercedes, all, all the electric or all the plug-in Mercedes are EQ something. Um, Hyundai is launching their um, Ionic, you know, as their electric sub-brand uh, this year. You know, so, you know, they are that, I mean, that, but that's just one piece of the puzzle. As you said, Rebecca, you know, you have to, figure out, you know, how do you get that message across about why this vehicle will suit your life? You know, what, what, why, you know, how will it get the job done that you need to get done with a vehicle? Better. It has to be better. Yeah. How will it do it better? Right. How will it do it better? You know, everyone was willing to move over to smartphones from, you know, a typical flip phone phone kind of feel. Because we're enthusiastic about that. I think you might find it shockingly. You're weird. (laughs) But <laughs> soothing, but weird. But it, <laughs> but it's better, and that's weirdly what soothing. It, it, well, <laughs> it, well, so but it, why is it better? Because of what it enables. Because it's right. Yeah. It's more convenient. It's exactly, and so that's what as a marketer I would focus on, and it, and be able to. You have to demonstrate right. how this is a better solution and better no doubt means more convenient for one. Right. And so this is the thing that uh, me as a, a marketer, I would look at and say, you know what, maybe we we do that, that ad campaign rollout because you have to do that to raise awareness. But one of the really effective ways that should be on the table is to actually do a lot of grassroots effort with with your EVs. Um, sure. You know, put a the neighborhood up, effect. Yeah. Uh, you know, people just have to experience them. And the only way for them to experience them is to experience them. Lend them out to people. Lend them out with a charger or something. It's like, you know, uh, it, yes, it's going to take some cost and some effort, but you're you're launching a vehicle, a new architecture for propulsion, and a, a new brand all at once. So you're probably going to be in the red for a while. <laughs> you, you might want to make sure that you can you can have a path to to making that that profitable, and and it's going to take some aggressive effort. Uh, you can't just sort of drop it in your product line and and not promote it. Um, you know, it's like we've seen some with some of the compliance cars and stuff. We're at that point now where you've got to really want it or kind of don't bother because you're just going to get lost. Um, so, well, and, and, and I think that's where I think, you know, GM's everybody in campaign could be very interesting, you know, because it, it basically saying, you know, 
EVs are for everyone now. You know, we've no matter what your need is from a small car like the Bolt to a big brawny, you know, off-road pickup truck like the the Hummer and everything in between, you know, we've got you covered with an electric vehicle. All right. See. <laughs> <laughs> um I will say, too, though, that not every vehicle has a hemispherical chamber. Even the Hemi is not a Hemi. Um, the That's problem, true. Problem, yeah. <laughs> problem with a Hemi is like when it's a true hemispherical, like half a grapefruit, uh, the edges of the combustion chamber, the, the sides there down down the side of the the, uh, the piston, it you, you wind up um, with a uh, cold charge. So it doesn't burn completely. So it's dirty. So it's, it's a wedge. Actually, the Hemi is a wedge. But it's masterful branding right that that hemispherical combustion chamber from the old days uh was a great brand they brought back because people knew that hemi equals you know lots of power power yeah well and the everyman people that they had in their commercials were awesome yeah, i would know I mean, it was, it was guys were just perfect and it was you know just the whole like that thing got a hemi like that's that's the kind of thing that i, I think you know you, you put clever people on it and, and you will, you'll have those kind of results with EVs. Yeah. so yeah brilliant um all right I, that's that's a lot of podcast. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so uh, thanks everyone for listening. You know where to find us at uh, Patreon, uh, which is patreon.com slash media. Um, you can find us uh, on your favorite podcasters as well. It would be great if you could leave us some reviews on Apple Podcasts. That's actually the largest platform that we see everybody using. So uh, the more you, you tell everybody how great we are, the more you'll be able to talk about our shows with other fans um, who just and, and the way Apple system works for their, their charts, you know, it's based on reviews and and, uh, and ratings. And so if you help us out by reviewing us on there, it'll help push us up on those on those tables so more people will see the show. Yeah. So, yeah, thanks for listening, and we'll, we'll talk to everybody next time. Bye. Thanks, everyone.